Is Domingo Santana's hot start for real? What about David Robertson's awful first week? I'll ask Ray Murphy, co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 5th. It's show number 16 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you, our first of the season. We'll have our feature interview with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, discussing some early facts and flukes, managing fantasy rosters in the early part of the season, the latest on the Baseball HQ website, boons and banes and more. We'll have our Market Watch Player News Reports, Harold Nichols with player news from the National League, including Trey Turner, Daniel Murphy, Corey Dickerson, and more. And Jock Thompson has news from the American League, including the Yankees' latest injury problems, some upheaval in Toronto, and more. I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about concerns over Chris Sale, early ERA and whip management, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Minnesota second baseman Luis Arias. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about early season trends. It's another Big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Even after just a week, some teams have really changed their playoff odds we got to talk some baseball. In a recent story at MLB.com, the excellent baseball writer Mike Petriello looked at teams whose first weeks have caused big swings in their playoff odds as calculated by fan graphs. The biggest gain is by the Tampa Bay Rays, who jumped 28 percentage points after their 5-2 start. They're still just at 48% to make the playoff round because they share the division with the beasts of the East in New York and Boston, but getting to a coin flip is better than having two coin flips to get in. The biggest drop has been an 18-point decline by the Cubs, who started 1-5, dropping them by 18 percentage points to 46% from 64%. The other gainers, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, the Mets, Minnesota, and Seattle, and the other decliners, the Angels and the Red Sox. In the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy, co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, and a 100% bet to deliver the goods. Ray Murphy, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Welcome to baseball season, Patrick. Isn't this great? It is great. Uh, Finally got some games going, got some players to watch, uh, got some players to mourn as they go onto the injured list one after the other. Oh, yeah. It's uh, (laughs) Even in the early going, it's interesting. Uh, How many teams are you playing, and how is your portfolio of teams doing so far you know it's pretty my portfolio is pretty unremarkable so far which i think is sort of the best case scenario at this time of year you mentioned the injury bug and you know that's kind of the thing you live in fear of at this time of year and i've got some justin upton so i haven't been completely clean clean in that regard but you know certainly uh given the rash of injuries this week that i know you were talking about in the news in the news segment uh, I've been relatively unscathed I think my final count was it's nine or ten teams uh, is my final count this year back to your original question 
and how do you keep track of your players? I've got three, and I have made a spreadsheet of where my players are because you know you can only listen or watch listen to or watch one game at a time. So I made note of which which major league teams I had the most players on, and those are the ones I gravitate towards, and starting pitchers, of course. But when you've got 10 teams, how do you know what game to listen to at night? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, and, you know, this time of year, it's a struggle. I, I, I think I'm kind of old school in this regard. Um, you know, there are all sorts of tools at HQ with uh, the team tracker, or you can go to any other site and, you know, build, uh, you know, watch lists for your teams and that sort of thing. And, and I do some of that for quick reference, but, like, I'm, I'm also sort of old school. I, I, I kind of compare it to, like, when we were kids, like, you had to remember everyone's phone number, and now they're just in your phone, and you don't use your brain for it. So, I, 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 at this time of year, I really do sort of pride myself on, like, doing it the hard way and, like, learning my, te- my teams by watching live scoring apps at night and seeing who's on each team and like, you know, I, I might be watching a random game and see someone pitching. I'm like, I know I owe him own him somewhere. Where is it? And then I go looking and remember. And then, you know, a couple of weeks from now that, you know, the, all those things seem to get more seared into my brain and it starts to become more instant recall. But I, I sort of torture myself that this time of year trying to, uh, you know, f- sort of force myself to memorize who I own and where. Yeah, me too. And as I watch it, I'm starting to realize more and more often that one of the drawbacks of having multiple teams is how often you notice, oh, there's my pitcher going against my hitter in opposite leagues, in two different leagues, or sometimes in the same one. But I imagine the more teams you have uh, under uh, operation, the more likely it is that at points you're going to have your own your own teammates uh, basically going against each other. Yeah, that's definitely going to happen. I have a I have a corollary to that too that I realized at this time of uh, time of year. It's uh, something I don't pay enough attention to in the preseason as we go through the, you know, eight or nine or ten drafts or whatever. So I, I don't pay a ton of attention to how many guys I'm accumulating over and over again. So and maybe I should because now I end up in a situation with like Justin Upton. It's like, oh man, really? I have him on four teams, or you know, you can like you said, a pitcher gets bombed, and you're like, why do I own why do I own this guy six times over? You know, I, I would have liked to have owned a little bit of him, but but six seems a little excessive, you know. So uh, maybe that's something I'm learning that I need to you know start. You talk about that spreadsheet of rostering, keeping track of everyone you roster, maybe the approach is not to create that like on opening day, but to actually start it in January and, you know, keep it, keep it, keep it running throughout the preseason so that you sort of learn like, okay, I've got my fill of this guy. Now let's try somebody else at first base. You know, do you have anybody else besides Justin Upton? Who's on a lot of your teams? Uh, so you know, speaking of the injuries this week, uh, the, the guy I own the most of, I think randomly enough is Corey Dickerson. Um, he just ended up being like the right fit for that, like 10th or 12th round outfielder in a bunch of my drafts. And, uh, now he's on the DL. So I did a whole bunch of, uh, lineup changes last night trying to replace him. Yeah. I had Corey Dickerson too, mostly on baseball HQ's advice. I've, I got him in the 12th round and I thought this is great. I was really happy about it. And of, of course, and he's, and he's not an injury prone guy. That's the other thing that really irks you. you know? I, I think, I don't think I realized it at the time when we did our projections back in you know the fall, really, but clearly we came out being the uh, high, the high uh, projection on Corey Dickerson for some reason. And I, I, I went back and looked at it because when you see that kind of thing bubble up, I think it was in TGFBI where I looked at the uh, HQ's 12 or 14 teams or whatever it was, and he was the most commonly owned player. And that's a trigger for me to go look at the projection and think maybe there was something wrong there. But I looked at it and it wasn't out of line. But of course, now he's going to be on the DL for a month, so he's not going to make that projection. 
a little later on in the show and at the site, I'm, I'm going to have my master notes talk about uh, early trends in the season. And of course, it's a bit tongue in cheek because there's, you know, five games done per team or something like that. So it's borderline a bit uh, ridiculous to start talking about trends five games in. But then I thought to myself, you know what? It's five games per team, but it's thousands of at-bats, thousands of plate appearances, thousands of batters face. So we're already at a place where maybe we we can legitimately start thinking about things we're seeing. Have you seen anything so far on a sort of game-wide basis that has raised your eyebrows? You know, I think raising your eyebrows is probably a great way to describe it because really it, you see something one night or, you know, particularly with pitchers who I, I think I tend to pay a lot more attention to at this time of year because, you know, like you said, in you know, pitch-type data, pitchers are throwing a lot more individual pitches than, you know, batters, even though they're playing every day. You know, I, a cold week is nothing to worry about for a batter. If he's healthy, we get so much weather going on this time of year. If a batter's healthy, I'm not worried about a slow start. I'm just assuming he's going to come around, at least at this early point. We can talk at the end of April. But with pitchers, there's so much more you can figure out, you know, just with the eye test. You know, we have so much data these days checking on velocity and pitch mix changes and just, you know, who looks good and that sort of thing. So, but, but raising an eyebrow is probably the right way to describe it because, you know, you'll often see somebody go out and have a really good first start, and then the second start comes around, and, you know, it's a very different experience. So, you know, we're getting to the point now with a bunch of people making their second starts, you know, by early next week, we'll start seeing third starts that, you know, it starts to get, uh, you, you, you do sort of start together, piece together a trend. You might get examples like, you know, Madison Bumgarner, who's a guy who I was off of, and I think our projection was pretty light on. Uh, the entire preseason, you know, but, but there are some mad bum backers out there who were sort of, you know, there was a little bit of Twitter chest dumping going on after his first start against the Padres where, you know, he was really sharp and his swing strike weight rate was, you know, super high and people were saying, oh yeah, mad bum's fine. Everybody was writing him off after his spring or after last year, he's going to be fine. And then, you know, the Dodgers got to him pretty good in the second start. So that's, you know, eyebrow raised, eyebrow goes back down, but then, you know, up by you, Patrick, one of the guys I wanted to ask you about was I noticed that Matt Shoemaker had a second straight really good start yesterday. So that's, you know, maybe that starts to get a little bit interesting. Or I'm, I'm going to be sure to, you know, take a look at his pitch mix and velocity numbers this week and maybe get, a, get some eyes in that third start and see what I'm, uh, see, see what checks out there. Yeah, an interesting story. I drafted uh, Matt Shoemaker in, in AL Tout. We had him as a five or six dollar player. I think I paid three or four in the, in the end game. At, at one of those stages in a in an auction where you're saying any seven dollar guy I can get for five at this point, I'll take. And uh, he was my guy. And of course, he started off terrific. But both of those starts were against Detroit, which is not exactly like going up against the uh, you know seventy six Reds uh, on an offensive basis. So I think we have to take it with a grain of salt. They strike out a lot, Detroit boy. They're going to strike out a ton this year, and that really helped Matt Shoemaker. But the American League East, that means sooner or later, there's going to be more starts against Baltimore, which will be helpful. And uh, but after that, you're looking at Boston and the Yankees, which means you almost have to sit him because uh, you know. You, you just have to, uh, unless he shows you that he can do it. Maybe you can't roll the dice once early against New York with all these injuries and see if he can manage against good teams in tough parks. But, yeah, it's it's uh, – I'm not 100% in on Matt Shoemaker, let's just say that. No, it's a great point about facing the Tigers twice. I I knew he raced, faced the Tigers yesterday. I didn't even connect it. It was both starts. It might have been Baltimore the first one now that I think about it. But either way, you know, <laughs> Baltimore's not exactly too terrific either. 
the, the mantra of Ron Chandler over the years and the Baseball HQ site, Ray, has been to exercise excruciating patience. I put it in quotation marks because it's become part of the uh, culture of the site and uh, of Ron. Why do we have to exercise excruciating patience with all this new data that tells us sooner than ever when, when things are actionable? Yeah, it's a balance, of course, but you know, my sort of default take on it, and I've used this phrase in our forums this week, where you know, this is a great week in our forums, where um, you know, even for veteran subscribers, you get you get that you know panic instinct a little bit, and people are you know raising some questions, and mostly you know mostly just asking for a sanity check on things, but they're asking questions like, you know, there was one this week of, should I drop David Robertson for, you know, Anthony Swarzak or, you know, other flavor of the second closer. And of course, you know, 10 people responded and said, no, no, you keep David Robertson. And somebody asked about swapping out Danny Jansen for Austin Barnes because the Dodgers offense has been so good. And of course the answer is the Dodgers offense isn't going to be that good all season long. But you know, my default answer to that question is sort of whatever you believed two or three weeks ago when you drafted that player, unless it's been invalidated, you know, that should still be your answer. If you liked, if you liked player A better than, better than player B three weeks ago, you should still like player A better than player B unless there's an injury or a job change or something like that has already, you know, changed. You know, there's already new information from what you had two or three weeks ago. And the Dodgers having a hot week doesn't qualify as new information. Yeah, I've always thought the idea of excruciating patience is really valuable, not just during the season, but in the draft. You have to be patient to grab your guys. It's a, it's a failing that I have. Sometimes I get excited and I want to roster guys quickly, and sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. Also, you can be too patient and miss out on some opportunities. So, the, as you said, a balancing act is a good way to put it. Yeah, and you're right. It does, it, it's not just um, – it's, it's particularly important at this time of year, but, you know, the, it's – um, it's patient aggression or something like that, right? You got to pick your spots, and you know when you see, you know, the draft is all about, in some sense, getting your guys, and you know, in season, it's all about, you know, addressing your needs, and you know, you you pick, you want to pick your right spot, and then when you, you when you think you find the right spot, you want to, you know, bid aggressively or you know, overdraft, pay, pay pay the extra buck or whatever the uh, whatever the aggressive move is once you you know, find the right spot, but you can't just be pedal to the metal churning your roster all year long because you'll probably, you know, you'll probably end up um, losing more in the friction than you'll gain in, uh, in, in hitting a few extra, a few guys right by jumping on them early. I wonder if there's a difference, Ray, in how impatient to be, whether you're in single league formats or, or very deep formats, you know, 2014 mix, something like that, versus playing in a 12 or 15 team mixer where there's lots of free agents going to be available pretty much all year. And the reason it comes up is uh, in uh, in my Tout American League, I was really aggressive going after guys early. And in fact, I was not as aggressive as I needed to be with some of the closer uh, changes that took place in Seattle and a couple of other places, Kansas City, and I got locked out there even despite what making what I thought were pretty aggressive bids. And I, I ended up uh, making an, a, a very aggressive bid on Brian Goodwin because I needed an outfielder and I thought, you know, there'd be a lot of bidding there and there was. So is, is there a difference, do you think, between uh, how aggressive you need to be or how patient you need to be, those conflicting emotions depending on how deep the league is that you're in. Yeah, I think there is. Um, I, I think it's even a little more, um, I, I, 
a little more nuanced than that. Um, certainly what you say is true, that the shallower the league, the deeper the free agent pool. But that's sort of a double-edged sword, too, in that the deeper the free agent pool, the more, the, the more opportunities there are going to be every week in FAB. And to me, the real question is, you know, how unique or how rare is the commodity that you're up for bidding that week? Take, you know, you talk about the Seattle closer situation, you know, Anthony Swarzak's got a save or two now, so he's probably going to be the flavor of the month fab pickup this week if he wasn't grabbed last week. And in a 12-team mixed, you know, sure, he's more likely to be available there, but, you know, that's the format where there's a closer available you know, not necessarily every week, but every couple of weeks, there's a new closer that, you know, closers in waiting aren't generally rostered in that format. So when guys bubble up to the top, you know, you can sort of get one whenever you need one. So if you believe in Swarzak's skills, fine, go get one. And if not, let the next one go by. On the other hand, in, you know, in, an AL, in, a, in a deep AL only, just about anybody who emerges with playing time is a scarce resource and they're going to get bid on because everybody needs more at-bats, you know? True enough. Uh, we used to say at Baseball HQ that Memorial Day was the earliest we could start assessing our teams and their likelihoods of success and where we're strong and where we're weak. Has that date changed at all? Yeah, I, I think that's a little late at this point. I think somewhere along the way, Memorial Day became May 15th and May 15th became May 1st. Now, you know, I, that's not to say that, you know, standings are cast in stone or anything. I feel like I always have a team every year that makes some giant run in like mid-June and goes from 12th to 2nd. And, you know, that kind of movement happens. And, you know, it's one of the most fun parts of this game when your team gets on a heater like that. And, you know, you're wondering, you spend all of May wondering what's wrong. And then suddenly everything starts clicking and you're like, oh, there was nothing wrong. This is great. Um, But, you know, those moves, you know, they're notable, but, you know, they're also kind of unusual. So I, you know, I I tend to be very hands off through April at least, but then, you know, I start treating things pretty seriously once uh, the calendar turns to May. And, you know, the other thing about it is, you know, season starts earlier now too. So Memorial Day is now week eight or week nine when, you know, 15 years ago it was probably like week six, you know. Yeah, that's true. Uh, when you when you start making these team assessments, Ray, you're looking at your team on whenever you decide is the the appropriate date after X number of games or May 1st or whatever you decide. What is it that you're actually looking at and how much is it your team in isolation versus your team in the context of the league? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's actually an evaluation that I actually start doing now. I, the difference is I don't do anything about it right now except in, you know, fairly extreme cases. But, like, I'm really watching my standings for outlier categories. Like I've got one team right now, my Tout Wars team in the mixed draft. That's a 15 team mixed and I don't have a save yet. You know, that's, you know, I don't need to wait much longer to know that's going to be a problem. And it's not that I don't have a save because I have four closers who don't have any saves yet. I mean, that stuff happens in the first week. I don't have a save because I have, um, I knew I was short a closer there anyway. And I drafted, um, I handcuffed the Philly guys. I have Robertson and Dominguez and they don't have any saves yet. So I knew I was going to need more saves anyway. And not only that, not only did I know I was going to need more, but Robertson and Dominguez don't have any yet. And Robertson looks terrible. So, you know, that's, <laughs> it was, I already knew it was a problem and it's becoming a more pressing problem by the day. I have another team that only has one stolen base in the first week. And, you know, I looked at it the last night or the night before, like reminding myself, like, okay, who's supposed to be running on this team? And I saw four or five guys who were supposed to be running. So I'm like, well, you know, maybe this is just, it's cold. Guys aren't running yet. But, you know, that's really where I, you know, I'm not paying any attention to 
whether what what place my team is actually in, but I'm kind of scrolling through the categories and I'm just looking for any place where my team is quickly falling out of the pack. If they're in the pack and they're, you know, when they're in the runs category, they're, you know, only a, they're in the bottom third in runs, but they're only six runs from picking up five points. Then I'm like, okay, fine. They're in the pack. Um, that can correct itself, you know, at any time. But, you know, the people who are falling, anywhere where I look like the slow zebra in the category, that's when I start getting, getting worried, even this early. I feel the same way, but on the other hand, I also look at my actual roster and think, well, you know, there's an explanation here that I really have to take in, into account. In my Tout American League team, it's a very weird team because all my pitchers are overperforming and all my hitters are underperforming, and I'm as a result, I'm fourth or fifth in the league the last time I checked. And uh, But I'm last in runs. I've got less than half what the leader has. I'm... Uh, near the bottom in home runs i've barely i've got five the leader's got 13 rbis i've got half what the leader has stolen bases i've got half what the leader has but i've got guys like jose ramirez who just aren't performing yet and i have to at some point i think i have to say to myself um in addition to the fact that there's nothing in the free agent pool in an american league only league anyway but i have to be patient with those kind of guys because i have to believe that that's going to sort itself out yeah, exactly. And, you know, performance is one thing, but then there's, um, you know, there's the playing time or the, you know, job aspect of it, too. I've got an article up on the site today about the the Tout Wars team that I was just talking about because it's the one team in my portfolio that I didn't uh, sort of do a draft recap on. So I did sort of a belated one today. And the reason I did it was because, you know, when I drafted it, there were a whole bunch of, you know, sort of the premise with the article was there were a whole bunch of, you know, perceived problems or you know possible issues that I saw the day after the draft but you know a month later today even with only a week of games in the books my sort of perceived concerns have changed and it's not so much about the weekly stand you know where the standings are after six six games or so but more about like I said what changed in spring training as far as like I drafted a bunch of starters who were, you know, bubble guys for rotation. So which ones didn't, didn't make it. And then there's that, uh, that Philly closing situation that I was just talking about a minute ago. And, you know, th that's another team where I had Justin Upton. So now there's, you know, maybe a bit of a power concern too. So the, the whole premise was, you know, I had, I came in with sort of a, you know, the morning, I had one set of concerns the morning after the draft and the draft was a month ago today. And we've only seen, you know, a week's worth of MLB games since then, but I've got a pretty different set of concerns now. So, you know, just, kind of, and, and right now, like I said, we're not really doing much about those concerns yet, but, you know, I'm at least, you know, tracking them. We talked about whether or not to go aggressively, and that usually means fab bidding. In single league formats, are you a hoard for the crossover type guy, or are you a spend early guy? I'm generally a spend early and often guy. I, I don't play a ton of only leagues, so that may not be, you know, the answer might be slightly different there. But I'm a big believer in using, you know, um, churning the roster, the back end of the roster by volume. And, um, you know, maybe it's a more applicable mixed league strategy because, like we were saying, there, there's more help you can find there. But I'm generally all about, like, trying to turn fab into a bunch of incremental improvements and you know especially the guy who can you know give you four or five six months of at bats rather than the two you get from the um from the uh the crossover uh i, I generally go that way i'm not one to you know part of having the hammer is having the discipline to resist the 
shiny object every week. And I find that even if I go in with a philosophy of thinking I want to, you know, be conservative and have the hammer, then I eventually get tempted by something and I end up not having the hammer in the end anyway. So just knowing that, to, knowing that lack of uh, discipline on my own, I just say, I'm never going to be the one with the hammer. Let's just spend when there's something we think can help us. Yeah, I think I'm, pr- I'm pretty much the same way. I used to be a hoarder, but then really you're hamstrung for the whole year because there's two other guys who want to be the hoarder as well. And uh, then you, you're all just sitting there staring at each other and whoever's got the $1 more can't make any bids at all. It's, it's a, it's a, it seems like a mugs game, especially since some years nothing ever happens. There's no crossover. Or the crossover is sort of meh. You know, it's a. I remember one year, uh, Jonathan Lucroy crossing over from Milwaukee was the big get, and he was not that good. Right. If there's a guaranteed payoff, that's one thing. But it's uh, you know, it's a, it, it, it's it, you're you're being being patient and essentially bidding on a blind item, right? It might and you know, and it might even be something good that you don't need too. It could be a head and stolen bases and D Gordon comes over. Great. Thanks. This is a question that has as many answers as there are experts answering it, but how do you calibrate your fab bidding? How much do you know how to bid for a free agent player that you really would like to get? You know, it's interesting because I I find that that's probably one of the things that I suffer on the most in playing so many leagues because I think that if you watch your league's bidding tendencies, you can pretty quickly get a good handle on what people are bidding for what types of commodities and buy after just looking at a couple of weeks of data and then adjusting for how fast, how the league wide fab is getting spent down during the course of the season. You can, you can make pretty good bets if you, if you put in the work to study that data, but across that many leagues, you know, studying that data gets pretty hard. So there was a league last year where, I needed closers, and every time a closer came up, I was, I thought, bidding aggressively, but somebody else would just blow me out of the water. And usually I'm okay with that, and I'm just like, fine, I'll, you know, I I wasn't willing to pay that much, I'll wait for the next guy. But after, like, after that went by, like, five or six times, I was kind of like, okay, you know what, the problem here is me. In this league, they're being aggressive, this is a real need for me, I should be at some point putting my foot down and saying, you know, fine, here's the hammer, I'm getting this guy, you know, here's 70% of my fab. And I never did it, and I never got the closer, and I suffered in the category all year. And if you went back and looked back at, you know, the guys who came up in April, I should have, you know, I should have thrown more money at Bud Norris or whoever it was because I had a pressing need, and, I, you know, the rest of the league was chasing those guys more aggressively than me, and I didn't adapt to that. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Ray Murphy, co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com. And Ray, uh, one of my favorite features at the site has always been facts and flukes. Uh, I love facts and flukes. I used to write for the feature quite a bit. I've written quite a few deep dive, the facts and flukes spotlight articles. I hosted the Facts and Flukes sessions at First Pitch Arizona a few times. Always had a great time. And I think it's a really valuable format for analysis when you look at performance and you validate it to decide whether it's a fact or whether it's a fluke because that's really tremendously actionable information. And maybe we could start by having you give a a high-level explanation of what Facts and Flukes is and how it helps fantasy owners. Yeah, so it's, you know, you give a pretty good summary there. And I think my only other point is we've got, you know, there's sort of a continual on the site of, you know, instant analysis to long-term analysis to off the deep end long-term analysis. And, you know, for um, 
for playing time, of course, we've got, you know, playing time today, which is our news ticker that gives you the, you know, so-and-so went on the DL and so-and-so is taking his job. And then we've got playing time tomorrow, which sort of takes the one step beyond that and says, okay, what if this guy loses his job? What if these two guys platoon? Who's next in line here? That sort of thing, playing a little bit of what if with um, with roles. But then Facts and Flukes, you know, gets away from roles and is the, the skill-based lens and looks at the other thing you were just talking about the you know the broad base what are this what what is this player at his core what are his foundational skills over the long term not what he did last week but what is what it was last four years look like how does that compare to what he's doing this year and of course we do it in terms of the you know our bread and butter analysis which is the you know, the component skills analysis looking at the underlying metrics the contact rate and the power index and the speed score and the you know the uh, distribution of batted balls, ground liner, and flies, rather than just uh, you know counting stats in your scoring categories. That's you know that, that that's the bread and butter of how we operate. In fact, Flukes does that. You know, uses that lens to try to say you know putting aside the playing time element, what, who, who is this guy really? You mentioned the uh, the focus on skills metrics, and I think that's ever since I started at BaseballHQ.com, that's been something that we've always focused religiously upon. The issue then becomes which skills metrics do we trust the most, and how do we start folding in the, the new data that comes in from StatCast and uh, Baseball Savant and those kind of sites where you have access to more granular information, and the challenge of incorporating it is when is when there's a lot of information, too much information, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a, it's definitely, a, it's yet another balancing act. And, you know, it's interesting. It's been a sort of a long burning issue in April on our site where our policy has been for the first, I usually like four weeks of the season, we run facts of flukes columns and don't even put the current season stat line in the facts of flukes analysis because it's just not relevant. The sample size is just not there. We can't draw any conclusions from it. It ends up being just a distraction. But by third and especially the fourth week, we're getting you know comments you know every day in the article like where is twenty nineteen numbers? Why aren't we talking about the fact that you know his contact rate has changed two points this year? And maybe we should be talking about that. But we you know we we sort of have to draw a line somewhere. We drew the line at four weeks. This year we went even a step further, and we actually you know because facts and flukes does not lend itself to analysis at this time of year we actually scaled back the facts and flukes column we're only running it a couple of times a week rather than every day through the month of april just because we're really saying look this this lens this facts and flukes long-term skill-based lens does not work in april we're going to ignore it for a few weeks and we shifted our whole editorial calendar for that knowing we were going to do this so we put we we uploaded we front loaded more content from facts and flukes back in december and january um and offset it uh by knowing that we were going to go sort of semi-dark here in april for a few weeks and so we'll turn it back on toward the end of april and you know start looking at like you say the numbers did stabilize more often the uh you know the walks and strikeout rates are right at the top of that list and for pitchers um you can get into you know some of the stat cast data for velocity and pitch mix changes and swing strike rates and try to uh try to clean out what dif- di- what differences are real but then you still got to worry about what we were talking about earlier is, uh, you know, Matt Shoemaker's swing strike strike rate might look a lot better than it did last year, but is that just because he's been carving up the Tigers and Orioles? 
I wonder what kind of thresholds we need to use about uh, when is a rate actually stable. Uh, there was a sort of a general agreement uh, that came out a couple of years ago that plate appearance, uh, 160 plate appearances was enough for walk rates and 800 was enough for batting average and so forth. And then uh, it subsequently came out that that wasn't accurate, that that was accurate looking backwards but not forwards. And so I think there's still a bit of mystery or a bit of confusion out there about when a, when a rate is a rate. But if we knew that kind of stuff, would it be possible uh, or just insanely difficult to you to do facts and flukes, flukes even early in the year based on the last 800 plate appearances, irrespective of what year they're in, considering what we know about the arbitrariness of seasons? Yeah, you know, that, that is possible. And it's, you know, I, I sort of have a pat answer about StatCast data that, you know, in general, you know, it's super interesting to look at and you can learn things from it. But you know, when I, during the off season, when I looked at it a lot, there wasn't much that I could find in there that was contradictory or not showing up somewhere in the metrics that we use. And it's, that's, but that's an off season analysis. That's a, you know, over the course of a season or a first half, second half split or something like that. It is an interesting question to see if the trends, can be validated more quickly by the Statcast data. I, I I don't I haven't seen that studied or a full answer on that yet, but that would be one of the more compelling uses for that stuff that um, that I would have seen yet. Because like I said, in the larger samples, you know, st- trends that Statcast or skill changes that Statcast is pointing out generally also show up in our metrics. So if that ends up, you know, if Statcast could be the canary in the coal mine on some of some of these. Uh, early season changes that would be super interesting it would be but it, i think it could also be super dangerous in that you know you look at a guy who had a uh, hard hit rate or barrel rate or whatever however you want to define it as uh, a 22 percent all last year and through you know 12 games this year he's got a barrel rate of 33 percent we can all get excited and say look at this guy's barreling up the ball better because it's still in 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 isolating 12 games you're kind of defeating the purpose of a, of looking at a skill as an established thing you really should be folding in 12 games from this year with 135 from last year and say this is what his rate really is and and it still looks a little high but maybe not as high as it you know what i'm saying yeah and you know the other aspect of it that um you know the people you know th- there were a bunch of people um you know, Saris, uh, Alex Chamberlain from Fangraphs, you know, people who get deep into the StatCast data who were at it like first pitch Arizona last year. One of the things they'll, they'll tell you that, you know, either on a, on a side conversation or we heard it in some of the sessions is that sort of the, the I'll, I'll use a bad pun here, that sort of the dirty secret, dirty little secret of the StatCast data is that it's pretty, pretty dirty. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, gaps in it or calibration errors that, you know, that need to get cleaned up over time. And, you know, sometimes they go back and restate the data. Sometimes they'll flag it and say, you know, in this, in this ballpark for this month, the sensor was off, that sort of thing. So, you know, when you know that that's an issue with that data, even though there's terabytes and terabytes of that, of that data, when, if you know that it's got some kind of reliability issues, then, you know, that also indicts it for those small sample sizes. Because even if you see something now, now with, you know, coming from a source that's, you know, really still in its infancy and its growth mode like that, you have to wonder if what you're seeing is legitimate or if you're, what you're seeing is because the, uh, you know, the camera in Tiger Stadium is tilted two degrees to the left, you know? 
I do know, and that used to be the beef that people had with the the sort of hard, medium, soft contact information that we were getting from Baseball Info Solutions, which was generated by guys just watching the games and scoring a ball, a soft, medium, or hard hit based on relatively subjective measures. I mean, they're, they're trained and showed, okay, this is what a hard hit ball, this is what we mean. But I wonder in a certain way whether that kind of, you know, if you have an experienced guy doing the watching and doing the scoring is just as good as measuring it to the, you know, one one millionth of a mile per hour using 17 cameras and sonar beacons and satellite imagery or whatever they're using. Yeah. And, you know, the way it goes with, uh, you know, with all the resources that NLV teams have, you can easily imagine that they're probably doing both, right? They've probably got people sitting there, you know, with their own eyes trying to validate the, uh, you know, with the, um, with, with the cameras and the, uh, and the lasers and everything that the track bands are telling them. Yeah, and I looked at it one time and, and uh, I compared the hard hit, balls that were scored as hard hit, uh, not, not hit ball by hit ball, but in the aggregate with barrel data from StatCast. And it was pretty similar. I mean, it, you know, it, it was the differences between the two. And I wasn't a science guy in university, but I remember this idea of significant digits. And at a certain point, you can be, putting down more points of decimal but you're not actually accomplishing anything because you don't it's not justifiable to be that precise and i think at some point we have to agree that there's going to be a certain amount of imprecision based on whatever the system is whether it's the technology is not quite fully developed or calibrated whether it's the you know you happen to get the intern that night who saw every line drive was a hard hit or whatever there's going to be these errors in it and we have to just say okay there's going to be errors in it but in the aggregate we have a pretty good idea Right, but now getting back to our question about you know, what to do with early season data, you've got to you got to wait long enough for the aggregate to actually you know be meaningful. Unless the same, unless the data is being aggregated from the same sources, and again, I agree with you that it's too early to say based on these twelve games. But if you go back one hundred and fifty games, it, presuming that your software lets you do it, then you can get a a, a better picture. Uh, you also used to write the speculator column, Ray. It's now being very ably handled at BaseballHQ.com by Ryan Bloomfield. Uh, let's get you to put on one of those two-sided hats with facts and flukes on one side, speculator on the other, because I'd like to ask you about some players who are off to unusual starts, unusually solid or unusually weak. Uh, through Tuesday's games, we had four players with four or five home runs, all of them prorate to 100 or more home runs in 600 at-bats, and we don't expect that to happen. But we have Chris Davis, Cody Bellinger, Christian Yellow, and Paul Goldschmidt off to these hot home run starts. Of them, who do you think is the least likely to be a fact of maintaining that kind of home run production? You know, those guys have all done it to some degree before. So, you know, there's some reason to think that they can all they can all keep that going. I think I'm still the most skeptical of Yelich, um, just because his surge last year, particularly in the second half, was just off the charts obscene in a home run per fly ball rate. And that's, of course, continued this early season. But now you, as you, it's, he's a great example of what we were just talking about. His early season home run per fly ball is off the charts. But you can attach that to his second half home run per fly ball. And now it's off the charts over, geez, it must be going on 350 at-bats or something like that. But we still know that the level he's at, even for 350 at-bats, can't sustain. So unless he starts hitting more fly balls, and I'll be honest, I have not checked to see what his fly ball rate is in the first week, then I still, you still have to bet on him being more of a 
20, 25 home run guy rather than a 40 home run guy. But, you know, a four home run week is a, is, is a, re- is a really good start toward either one of those numbers. Through Tuesday, we also had some three home run guys, including Michael Franco, uh, Colton Wong, Christian Walker in Colorado, Jock Peterson, Tim Beckham, Adam Jones, Azdrubal Cabrera. Any of these power breakouts in week one that feel to you like they might be facts? I think Peterson's the one I'm most intrigued by there. Um, I've been intrigued by him for a while, not just from the power point of view, but going back to, geez, I guess it's 2016 now when he sort of reinvented his swing and, you know, got banished to the minors for a while. And his contact rate has gotten much better since then. Uh, He always had power, but, you know, he had some, you know, there were some big holes in his swing. But if this is, you know, sort of the culmination of a, you know, multi-year effort to sort of re-hone his plate approach, then, you know, he always had power. He sort of traded it for contact. And now he's marrying the two of them. That's a... that, that's a skill set that I, I, of this group, I would be the one most, I, I would take a shot at uh, 25 plus home runs there. And I was just noticing when I was uh, reading through the list that Colton Wong and Tim Beckham were both in Steve Gardner's article at BaseballHQ.com with the Tuffy Awards. Uh, Nick and I talked about that. And uh, Tim Beckham, in fact, gets the Tuffy Award as the guy least likely to maintain his hot start. Yeah, he, uh, he he cheated in uh, you know get, getting off to that. Uh, you know, he was the uh, two game MVP in Japan, and then uh, you know had a really big uh, opening weekend too. So he's uh, you know he he, put, he put, he's had he's had a good April already, and it's only April fifth. So uh, you know if he doesn't do anything else, he's still going to be on some leaderboards for uh, for a few weeks now because he's kind of lapping the field. And I'll bet he'll be on a lot of ad top ad lists too, uh, and I don't think it's justified either, but I could be wrong. But but Steve makes the point, he's 29 years old now, he's a former number one pick, and he's you know, getting a little long in the tooth for us to say, finally, this is the breakout. It's not impossible, but I'd say it's unlikely. Uh, uh, Nick and I talked about Trey Turner getting hit on the hand. He's out for a while. He started off with four stolen bases, so we don't have to worry about him as a stolen base guy for a few weeks. Uh, but D. Gordon also has four quick bags to start the year. Tommy Pham, a guy that Baseball HQ liked coming into the season, has three. How confident are you that D. Gordon's fast uh, start on stolen bases is a fact? And what do you think his ceiling is on stolen bases this year? I mean, his ceiling, I mean, we've seen it before. It's it's 50-plus. I mean, he didn't run last year hardly at all and was super disappointing to his owners because, you know, primarily because he had, I think, a broken toe. And it's not hard to understand why you're not going to run with a broken toe. So, but, I mean, he's only, I think he's put, he's 30 or pushing 30 now. So, he's sort of on the, you know, getting into the speed is a skill of the young and you're not young anymore problem. But, I mean, we all know D. Gordon, D. Gordon can run. So, um, you know, it, it, I, I think the question is his at-bat total. And if he gets 500 at-bats, I, I'd be penciling in 45 to 50 for him. From your lips to God's ear, I've got him on one of my teams. Uh, Domingo Santana interests me. He's got three home runs, uh, also got a couple of bags. He's uh, up in, among the league leaders in RBIs partly because they had some extra games in Japan. He's batting over 300. He's walking in 15% of his plate appearances. Dominguez Santana before the season was one of those guys who were often touted as not going to be a first-round ADP but could be a first-round producer. And after week one, that's what he looks like. How do you like his chances of finishing 2019 as a fact and a first-round talent? You know, he's interesting. Of all the 
sort of reclamation projects or, you know, post-type prospects that Seattle collected this year. He was my favorite. I was just dazzled by him a couple of years ago when he had the one big season in Milwaukee. And then he sort of ended up last year as the odd man out when they brought in Yelich and Kane and sort of, you know, pushed all in there. He, you know, ended up in a reserve role. I think he was in the minors for a while. But, you know, there were there were flaws in that skill set from a couple of years ago. But, you know, he had... You know, he showed a significant power-speed combination, and you know Seattle was wisely going to just leave him alone and let him play this year and see if he can get back to that. Uh, I'm pretty optimistic. He's, uh, you know, you could see what uh, certainly 20 homers, 15 stolen bases is in play there, and maybe more than that uh, if he, uh, you know, he's he's got some swing and miss in his game, and if he manages to, you know, marry the the power and speed he already owns with with contact skills, then yeah, he's a great candidate for that. Uh, you know, outside the top 280p, who ends up being, you know, first or second round value. He's he's got the because the prerequisite for that is really the the broad base of skills. You you can almost not get to first round value without having um, significant speed to go along with the power. And so he's got the he's got the sort of foundational elements of that in play for sure. Michael Franco has three home runs. Uh, he's batting, I don't know, last time I checked, he was batting over 500. He had a 700 OBP. And again, nobody expects that to continue at anywhere near that rate. But how interested are you in Michael Franco as a fact and another possible 2019 breakout that could make it into the sort of top 25 hitters in all of baseball? You know, I kind of feel like I'm getting teased again here. I, it might just be that I have too much baggage with Franco. Um, he dates back to, I don't know if you were around for this, but he was the darling of uh, one of our minors guys in the HQ forums. In fact, it was uh, Matthew uh, St. Germain, who is one of our call-ups writers, but uh, Franco was one of his hobby horses even before we hired him to write for us. Um, so I, I sort of followed that like when my, when Franco was even coming up through the minors. And it's and I can understand why he was attached to him. It's a really interesting skill set. I mean, he makes a lot of contact in for this day and age, you know, pushing, you know, upper 80s to 90%. And, you know, that's such a that gives you such an advantage toward the counting stats, especially in a ballpark like Philly. If he can just, you know, if he gets the ball and play that often, you know, good things almost have to happen. But he's been so streaky, and he's had months or even half seasons where it looks like he's putting everything together. So part of me looks at the first week and is like, oh, here we go again. It's going to be a one-month Franco hot streak, and then, you know, and he's going to annoy me for the four or five months after that. But who knows? I mean, this could also be him actually finding consistency, and maybe he does, you know, break out and hit 30 homers. Has anybody else caught your eye as a potential breakout uh, among hitters based on these first five or six games of 10 days or so? You know, hitters are hard. Um, No no one's really caught my eye, but as I was saying earlier, I've sort of had my eye a little more on pitchers right now. Um, There's not a you know, the, the hitters just aren't resonating with me yet when I'm I'm just kind of tuning in around, zooming around MLB uh, TV at night, trying to get my eyes on on a bunch of pitchers and, you know, obviously ancillary to that, you're going to see a bunch, of, a bunch of hitters, but not too many have really resonated yet. And there's also been some slow starters. Miguel Cabrera will be in the Hall of Fame one day for his hitting prowess, but he was uh, three for his first 21. They were all singles. He's batting 143 with uh, essentially uh, zero power. Are we finally seeing the end of the line for one of the game's most feared hitters, do you think, or is this some kind of fluke and a buy-low opportunity? I mean, uh, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna cop out of that answer because I don't think three for twenty one changes my opinion at all. But I was off of Cabrera this year. Um, 
you know, I was just dubious of him the entire offseason coming back from both the latest injury and the you know, multi-year track record of his, of his body breaking down. And I really just thought that, you know, there might be some flashes this year, but I didn't have any confidence that he could come back and be himself for a chunk of the season. Um, and then it's funny because as so often happens when a guy like that, who's you know, got legit hall of fame skills, you know, starts to demonstrate in March that he's healthy and everyone's like, Oh yeah, Mickey looks great. The bicep is fine. You know, he got some helium in drafts this March. Um, and people were really sort of getting into, um, getting into, you know, getting back on the Mickey bandwagon and I kind of wasn't really there. So I don't own any Mickey this year. Um, so I, I, you know, I, but I'm not all, I'm not at all swayed by the three for 21. Andrew Benintendi was also off to a pretty slow start. I think he was three for 20. Those were all singles, and a single run and two RBIs. He had an RBI triple on Wednesday in Oakland. This was a guy who had hard contact questions coming into the season. I invested $33, and I've noticed he's popping up a lot in the early going. Uh, how confident should I be that Andrew Benintendi's early struggles are a fluke? Yeah, you know, there's a seems to be a championship hangover going on all over that Red Sox lineup right now. So, um, and the rotation certainly. So, I'm sure that'll shake off. Uh, you know, they're on a long West Coast trip to start the season. They'll get home this week, and things will probably get better. Um, but I, I wasn't crazy about Benintendi this season. Um, I, his, you know, he's got this. He's got a broad-based skills. You know, he hits for average runs a little, hits for some power. You know, he, he got moved to the leadoff spot in that Boston lineup, which all in all right there is, uh, you know, that broad-based skills in the lineup position on a, at the top of a great lineup are enough reasons to justify his um, preseason value. But, uh, you know, I, I wasn't expecting much more than a consolidation year this year. I don't think that there's, you know, 30 homers or 30 steals coming there. He's just... Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a nice, well-rounded, broad-based skill set that will end up being very valuable in the end. But, you know, it, it was, it's not, you know, I, I wasn't expecting to see another level out of him this year. Well, I wish you'd have told me before <laughs> before I went <laughs> but, into you know, my... But, uh... if, if he repeats, that's fine. You probably, you, you, if you paid for a repeat, you're just fine. Yeah, I think I overpaid for a repeat. I was looking for a little growth, but not that much. Uh, Ray, this has been terrific so far. Uh, take a breather. Go check the videotape. I know you like to do that, and we'll have you back in just a second for part two. Okay. Ray Murphy is co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, and he'll be back a little later on in the show. Coming up, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Jackson with four runs batted in. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. We have Jock Thompson on deck with the American League and leading off it's our National League Report and Baseball HQ Pitching Analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Well, we'll start this session with a real serious blow for a lot of fantasy owners. First-rounder national shortstop Trey Turner, who had an NFBC average draft position of ninth overall and was taken as high as fourth, was hit by a pitch on Tuesday while trying to bunt. He suffered a broken right index finger, and the team has not announced a timetable for when he'll be back. Uh, whenever it is, however long he's out, it's bad news for Turner owners. Now, Turner was an early first-round pick in most leagues and off to a very fast start with a 1.275 OPS, four steals, uh, really doing his owners good things, and then uh, 
than than the injury. Uh, no quick way to replace him, so his Arnold will have to re- hope his return happens quickly. Uh, the Nationals, however, are not giving out estimates regarding the length of his absence, uh, but this is a, a fairly serious fracture because the the finger was in the way of the bat and the ball and, and got caught between them, so that uh, that complicates matters. Um, Wilbur Default figures to get the bulk of the playing time while Turner's out. Uh, the drop-off is significant. In 2018, he had a 247 uh, expected batting average with a, uh, a 54 expected power index. Uh, neither one of those real good. Uh, did steal 10 bases on the strength of a 133 uh, respected expected speed index. But Turner's roster spot went to Adrian Sanchez, whose numbers also don't shout claim me. Uh, over 129 major league at bats, he has a 253 expected batting average and a 42 expected power index. Does have a little bit of speed, 106 speed, but that has led to no stolen bases. So depending upon how long he's out, looking at AAA as the national number two prospect, Carter Keboom, uh, comes with a 9C rating, but only 248 at-bats, all at AA, uh, above A-ball. So uh, still has some uh, some minor league playing time to do, and national general manager Mike Rizzo has indicated the team does not think he's ready for the majors, uh, particularly defensively. But uh, if he gets off to a hot start, and if Defoe struggles in the majors, who knows what may happen there. Yeah, I thought when I first saw this that uh, Keyboom looks like a, a an interesting stash anyway, especially in dynasty and keeper formats. I'm sure he's on a lot of rosters, but he could be the kind of guy you want to sneak onto your last reserve spot if it's available to you. Because, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Wilmer Defoe has some major league experience, uh, but certainly not a groundbreaking guy on the offensive side of the ball, especially. Uh, before we go on and talk about this, uh, does it strike you as odd, Nick, that in uh, a major league ball player asked to to lay down on a bunt, doesn't know how to keep his fingers out of the way of the ball? Yeah, you know, that's, that is a concern, isn't it? You, you would think that that would be something that uh, that people would learn early, but of course, uh, depending upon how you're coming up through the ranks, uh, not everybody learns how to bunt, although you'd think a guy with Trey Turner's speed would learn how to bunt. But uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a, one of one of those oddities that you go, really? Yeah, I remember. I don't know whether he was sacrificing or bunting for a hit, and of course the two things are different. But yeah, the the first thing they kind of show you is how not to get your fingers in the way of the ball, and uh, it's a shame. He's a really good player, and I hope he's not out for a long time, uh, much as it would help me in my leagues if he were. Uh, weirdly enough, speaking of guys breaking their fingers, Colorado infielder Daniel Murphy broke his index finger. It's on the other hand. He's going to miss several weeks for sure. A report said the injury could be diagnosed as mallet finger which sounds like a croquet injury, unless it means it's like the result of hitting your finger with a mallet, in which case it sounds like, ouch, and I think that's the case. Uh, Rob Carroll was on the story for Playing Time today. Brian Slack also wrote about the situation in his coverage of the National League West for Playing Time tomorrow. So what is going to happen with Daniel Murphy's playing time? Yeah, we're, we're a little uncertain uh, as we start the season because uh, the immediate reaction was that... Uh, that the injury would open the door for Garrett Hampson, who had more or less lost out of the second base competition to Ryan McMahon. And that logic made some sense. Uh, McMahon received the majority of his starts at first base last season. Uh, Hampson, a better defender at second base. So uh, there was some speculation that the team might prefer to keep McMahon at second so he could find his groove defensively. Uh, and the same apparently goes for Ian Desmond, who can play first base. Uh, but uh, he's reacclimated himself to center field after a few years in the first base of a combined first-base outfield stint. So um, first first half of this week, DH was available. So didn't get too much guidance in terms of how things would shake out. 
But it's clear that Mark Reynolds could find his way into additional at-bats. Reynolds, uh, 35 years old, saw only limited time with the Nationals last year, 206 at-bats. But saw a very impressive power, a 126 expected power index last season, 69% contact rate, which is close to actually above his career average, uh, and getting a, a high walk rate, 10% walk rate. So, uh, And there's some organizational familiarity with Reynolds. He, uh, two years ago in Colorado, posted a 257, 352, 487 lines, 30 home runs, 97 RBIs. So they're familiar with Reynolds and familiar with what he can do in Coors Field. Uh, something to keep in mind. Uh, one more name to monitor is Pat Valalaika, uh, second base from Colorado, has been on the Rockies roster at some point for each of the past three seasons. Uh, a combined 220, 256, 421 line with 16 home runs. Uh, Valalaika impressed this spring, 286 batting average, four homers, 13 RBIs, and 49 at bats. Uh, has positional flexibility to play all around the infield. Uh, power metrics were very uninspiring last year, but could work his way into additional at bats if he can regain his power stroke. Uh, and one thing that is worth noting, I think, at this point, is that McMahon has been bumped up in the batting order for Colorado, from the number seven spot to the number five spot in the wake of the injury. Uh, he scuffled a bit out of the gate, five for his first 22, but if he can find uh, his hitting stroke uh, that he had in the spring when he hit 424 with a 763 uh, uh, OPS, four home runs, uh, you know, there's a good chance that... Uh, that uh, this could be Ryan McMahon's breakout season. So you can see a sizable uptick in runs and RBIs if he can keep himself in the lineup with that kind of hot hitting. Yeah, McMahon's, uh, that 763 was his slugging percentage, actually. His, uh, his OPS was over 1,200. And uh, in my in the minors in 2017, he, he slugged 583 and had an OPS close to 1,000. So this guy can hit, and, and the question is, can he hit at the big league level consistently? An interesting thing about Mark Reynolds, who I think is going to be a huge fab run target in leagues where he hasn't been claimed already, is that... Uh, You'd think a big power hitter like him would have pretty pronounced platoon splits, and he really doesn't. His platoon splits over his career have been relatively even. Right, they have indeed. So you know that's that's another advantage certainly for Reynolds uh, is that he doesn't have to be platooned. I also wonder if I, I look at Ian Desmond out there in center field, and I think, boy, oh boy, they can't do better than this, and. I wonder if they ever look at uh, at getting Hampson out there. He's got great wheels. Uh, certainly, it's a, it's easier to play the outfield and the infield. He may not, he may have done that in the past. I don't know, but you know, if I was trying to jigger and move around guys on the Colorado roster, I might start thinking if I wanted Hampson in the lineup, uh, you could do worse than having him in center, Desmond at first, and whatever else the rest of that stuff uh, works out. Yeah, that's certainly a possibility. The other idea, of course, is they've got Ramiel Tapia pretty much sitting on the bench at this point. And so there's another guy that uh, could play some, uh, a fairly good defensive outfield uh, and uh, move, uh, move Desmond to first base. So they've got a lot of parts they can move around. In Pittsburgh, another serious injury. Outfielder Corey Dickerson was placed on the 10-day IL. He has a strained right shoulder. That happened on Thursday. The Pirates reinstated right-hander Jordan Lyles from the injured list to make up the roster spot. Rick Green covers the Pirates for playing time today. What are the ramifications for Corey Dickerson, who was a real good get, I thought, for my uh, fantasy baseball invitational team? Yeah, he's a wonderful get, I would think, and uh, sorry to see him go down. Uh, with Lyles' recall, the Pirates did not replace him uh, immediately on the roster, so as it stands, they could go with an outfield of uh, starting Marquette, Melky Cabrera, and J.B. Shuck. And it's J.B. Shuck who's getting our initial bump in playing time while Dickerson's out. 
Uh, no official timetable on a return. Pittsburgh media report that Dickerson could miss a month. Uh, Shuck has over uh, 1,100 at-bats in the majors, but hasn't done much with a lifetime 244 batting average, just eight home runs in those 1,100 at-bats. Uh, the Pirates have also had Kevin Newman and Colin Moran shagging fly balls, so looks like a very fluid situation as they try to figure out how to replace Dickerson. Well, one thing you can bet, they're not going to replace him with a big free agent signing. Uh, that That's not to, the way Pittsburgh does things these days. Uh, before we move on, uh, Jordan Lyles, he gets recalled. He had a start on Thursday. He did. He looked okay in that first start. Five innings, three hits, three walks, just two strikeouts, nowhere in runs. But we don't have a very strong projection for Jordan Lyles. Uh, Mid-fours ERA, whip around 1.4, 115 strikeouts or so at 131 innings, a handful of wins. So, um just just sort of okay for Jordan Lyles, not somebody I think you need to necessarily keep your eye on. Well, speaking of my fantasy baseball invitational team, Nick, uh, I somewhat shrewdly grabbed A.J. Minter uh, while he was on the injured list and got him some uh, relatively on the cheap. Uh, they've activated A.J. Minter right away, and uh, they optioned Bryce Wilson to Gwinnett in AAA. Phil Hertz covers the Atlanta situation in playing time today. So what happens in the Atlanta bullpen now that former closer A.J. Minter is back? Yes, but Minter just uh, missed only a week. He's coming off a very solid rookie season with a hundred uh, with a ten point one DOM, a three point one command, one ten BPV, and had fifteen saves after uh, Rodas Vizcaino hit the injury list with his own shoulder issues. Uh, Vizcaino reportedly still has some issues with that shoulder, although he did get his first save of the year on April third. And if he is not a hundred percent, Minter could take over as a primary closer. Uh, of course, Minter also has a platoon advantage. Uh, for now, we're keeping the save split at 60-40 in flavor of Vizcaino, but certainly that could change. Yeah, I, I like the possibility of A.J. Minter and Vizcaino uh, at worst kind of splitting the saves and uh, at best Minter moving back into that role depending on Vizcaino's health, as you said. Uh, in Arizona, another injury to report, Diamondbacks infielder Jake Lamb suffered a strained quadricep on Wednesday, scheduled to undergo an MRI on Thursday. No results yet. Rob Carroll covers the Diamondbacks for playing time today. What's going to happen in Arizona if Lamb is out for any length of time? Well, that injury occurred on the day that Lamb played third base for the first time in 2019 after he'd been splitting time with uh, Christian Walker at first base. Walker's had a really strong start a week into the season. He's the team leader in home runs and RBIs. Um, Lamb wanted to bounce back from his 2018 season in which he had a bum shoulder that kept him, kept him uh, allowed him to play only 56 games, fell down to six home runs from 30 in 2017, off to a 4-for-15 start this year, Right now, we don't have the MRI results. They haven't been disclosed, and we can't say when he'll be back. Uh, for now, I expect Walker to remain at first, Eduardo Escobar at third, and we'll adjust the playing time estimates as we get more news on that situation. Those lower body injuries, though, boy, Nick, uh, strained quadriceps, we've talked about calf injuries and those kind of things. Sometimes, even after you recovered, uh, you know, walk, enough to walk around for you or I, if, uh, if, if we had that kind of injury, you know, it, it's a nuisance, but if you're a major league ball player, it's more than a nuisance. That's where all your power comes from. That's right. It certainly does. And so it can be, uh, it can be more of a problem and needs to be almost completely healed before they're, they're really getting back out on the ball field. Surprising move, uh, I thought, Nick, in San Francisco. They acquired outfielder Kevin Pillar from Toronto on Tuesday, giving up spare parts, uh, infielder Alan Hansen, right-hander Derek Law, and a prospect right-hander named Juan DePaula. Rob Carroll again on the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Where, how does Pilar fit in in San Francisco? Yeah, Pilar is kind of one of those, 
one of those kind of under the uh, under the cover fantasy guys. He's got a Superman reputation as a fly, high flying glove artiste, and that tends to overshadow his all around contributions as a fantasy outfielder. Uh, career on base percentage just under 300. He's become a reliable 15 home run, 15 stolen base guy. Uh, the move from uh, Rogers Center to San Francisco's uh, offense dampening Oracle Park with a minus 26 percent home runs for right-handed batters, that's going to eat into his home run total a bit. But it plays well for the kind of gap game for which uh, Pilar plays and for which he's better suited. Um, he's increased his doubles output each year since 2013, 40 doubles in 2018. George Gerardo Parra is the most accomplished outfielder on the team, but uh, how he'll be used has yet to be determined. Uh, the Giants optioned uh, outfielder Michael Reed, leaving them with Pilar, Parra, Stephen Duggar, as well as uh, current left fielder Connor Joe. Uh, Pilar started in center field in his first Giants start with Parra in left and previous center fielder Stephen Duggar in right with Joe on the bench. Uh, we expect that Pilar will get the most playing time of any San Francisco outfielder, uh, but they still could, could be uh, jostling their roster. I was just surprised by this trade, Nick, for this reason. The uh, Giants are rebuilding. Pilar's not a young player. He's not a cheap player, and he's a free agent after the end of this year. I just can't figure out what they're doing with this, unless there's more moves in the offing. Yeah, you know, it is, it is kind of a strange, a strange uh, move, isn't it? It's one of those things you think if they're going to contend, they feel they're going to contend, then uh, this might be something they would, would do. But uh, maybe they're figuring they can get more for Pilar if they uh, get a good run out of him and they can trade him as it, uh, the trade deadline approaches little bit of uh, arbitrage there by them, if that's what they think. And they're a smart team, so we'll, we'll have to see. Uh, speaking of uh, prospects, uh, Sandy Alcantara, starting pitcher in Miami, looked really terrific in his first outing. Uh, he's a very highly rated pitching prospect. Steve Gardner had an article at BaseballHQ.com uh, talking about his Tuffy Awards this week. Uh, he called Alcantara a non-Tuffy. Before we start, Nick, what are Tuffies and non-Tuffies, and why isn't Alcantara a Tuffy? The Tuffy Awards are, are named after a, uh, a Tuffy Rhodes who, uh, who uh, hit three home runs in his first week and wound up with five for the season. So Tuffies are those guys that, uh, uh, that come out of the gate blazing and get us all excited in fantasy about picking them up and then uh, disappoint us the rest of the season. Non-Tuffies, Gardner says, are those guys who uh, surprise maybe a little bit out of the gate, but... Uh, who might actually be worth picking up, and Alcantara is one that he, that he talks about, is a non-toughie. Alcantara throws as hard as uh, anyone in the majors. He hasn't been able to throw strikes in his brief stints in the majors, and that's been a problem. Uh, an unsightly walk rate of 6.2 walks per nine innings. But that was not an issue in his first start. After he got a rotation spot, he struck out six, did not walk anyone, uh, blanked the Colorado Rockies on four hits over eight innings. Uh, Consistency is still a question for Alcantara, but has a great home park. Uh, his upper 90s fastball will give him a chance to succeed, especially if he can command it the way he did against the Rockies. And that's the key for Alcantara is can he get the ball over the plate? Pretty good home park for a pitcher. Uh, you, you mentioned that uh, he needs to just get that ball over the plate. And uh, he's going to be an interesting pickup. I'm going to be watching this this week because you've got, on the one hand, uh, you know you have the, the pluses. He's, he's got great stuff. He's got great strikeout stuff, but on the minuses, and a great park, and on the minuses, you've got, hey, it's Miami, right? I mean, they're just a bad team, which is a, which is a problem, and then you've got the walks. Right, definitely. So it's one of those, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, 
maybe so, maybe not situation, but definitely worth watching because uh, this guy could be a very fine pitcher if he can get control uh, of his stuff. And if Miami all of a sudden decides to be competitive and starts getting players behind him, wouldn't hurt either. Uh, finally, another uh, top prospect pitcher, uh, Arizona Diamondbacks right-hander John Duplantier's contract was selected by the Diamondbacks from Class AAA Reno on Monday. Uh, they optioned uh, Il Damaro Vargas back to Reno. Rob Carroll, a busy guy at playing time today this week, covering this story as well. Duplantier was also discussed in Baseball HQ's Minor Leagues call-up reports, which have already started. What's the outlook for John Duplantier? It's hard to imagine a more satisfying debut that, that he got. A one-hit, three-inning save that included two strikeouts. Uh, pitched only two innings in spring training before being assigned to minor league camp. So jumping from double-A as a reliever, no less, uh, is a bit of a surprise. Uh, the only thing that's marred his resume has been injuries. His career minor league record is 17-4, and 1.79 ERA. I expect he to get his major league feet wet and some relief outings and probably return to either triple-A or double-A continue his development as a starter. Uh, a bit of a health risk. He uh, uh, certainly has the pedigree of a must-add, uh, discussed in depth in uh, Baseball HQ's call-ups column. Uh, certainly someone to keep your eye on. Um, I'm not expecting them to use him a whole lot this year because he has more minor league development to do. I like the call-ups reports because they kind of remind us all, if we've been following the prospects, uh, throughout the uh, preseason, we get all the organizational reports and we get these uh, top 100 lists and so forth. Um, but they uh, they say that uh, Duplantier is a 9C prospect, Nick, which is a perennial all-star, and that C rating means he's got, like I think, a 70% chance of achieving his ceiling. And to me, that implies that even if he doesn't reach the ceiling, he's going to be a very serviceable major league player. And uh, I know they tell me not to say that, but that's how I look at it, and that's what I'm going to stick with it. But uh, he's 24 years old. Uh, he looks like he could be ready. Yeah, he very he very well might be ready. So uh, I probably need a little more a little more minor league seasoning, as we said, not a whole lot of uh, uh, of, of upper level minor league seasoning at this point. But very a great arm, a, a seven one point seven nine ERA in the minors, and that's something to to uh, take a quick look at. Uh, 269 last year in Double A at Jackson, uh, and uh, he's the number one prospect in the Diamondbacks organization, number 59 on the Baseball HQ Top 100 prospects. And Nick, this might be an interesting buying opportunity because a lot of owners are going to look at him and say, "Setup guy, middle reliever, probably not going to be on the roster for long," and ignore him. So you might be able to sneak in there with a f- relatively low ball bid, grab him, stash him uh, while he's on your roster. He's not killing you, and then uh, should he get re- called partway through the season as a starter now you've really got some profit opportunity yeah very definitely that, that's a good point all right nick thanks very much for helping us out with the national league news we'll talk to you again in a week's time all right thank you patrick harold nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at baseballhq.com covers the national league for us here at baseball hq radio over we go to the american league and baseballhq.com director of news and analysis jock thompson jock welcome back hey pd good to be back yeah it's good to have you uh we'll start with the new york yankees they've been hit with a slew of new injuries they already had a slew of old injuries they're dealing with a lot of uh, tumult and uh, difficulties here more lineup changes this past week matt dodge covers the american league east the yankees kept him busy uh, what's going on there yeah, both the Yankees and the Blue Jays kept Matt Dodge busy, but for the Yankees, it starts with Miguel Andahar and uh, Giancarlo Stanton both hitting the DL. 
Andahar has a small labrum tear in his throwing shoulder, and this puts him in danger of missing the rest of the season. He's contemplating surgery right now. He, he hopes not. Uh, Stanton's projected to be out for three weeks. It's a lot better. Uh, he's got a grade one bicep strain. And, of course, not so surprisingly, Troy Tulowitzki, who'd been playing a lot of shortstop while uh, Didi Gregorius is out till after the All-Star break, we think, is also on the shelf with a strained calf, and who knows how long he'll be out. Can't say I'm too surprised about Troy Tulowitzki getting hurt, but the uh, of the of the three things, of course, the Stanton injury looks the most difficult. But Andujar causes the most roster problems, I think. So, what are they going to be doing to fill the gaps? Well, it really saps the Yankees' depth. I mean, this is why they acquired DJ LeMahieu. But of course, now with Andujar out, he's he's uh, firmly ensconced at third base for the time being. So the Yankees actually look okay there, despite the obvious power drop off. Uh, LeMahieu can get on base and and perform a lot of small ball uh, contact-related, batting average-related skills. Uh, Glaber Torres had been shuffling between second base and shortstop before the latest Tulo injury. They'd been sharing uh, the shortstop position. Now he's going to handle all of the shortstop reps, it looks like, and that leaves a gaping hole at second base. Uh, At least for now, this makes Tyler Wade, who was just called up, the most of the time second baseman. Wade's one of those guys who's teased with his skills over the past few seasons, but he's never taken advantage of his major league opportunities. He's hit just 164 over 134. I'm sorry, over 134 at bats. And his most recent minor league numbers suggest that his skills may be backing up a little bit. Uh, he was caught eight times in 19 stolen base attempts. He used to be a, a much better base runner than this. And he's striking out a little more often. So it's another opportunity for Wade, who doesn't offer much pop. Uh, he's a flyer. I'm not particularly sold on him right now. Yeah, I had him last year because he came out of spring training as the uh, as the uh, starter at uh, somewhere in the infield, I don't remember where, and uh, gosh, he was terrible. He he didn't hit a lick, and they after 10 days or so, they sent him down. And really, he was the reason, or one of the reasons, that the Yankees called up Andujar and, uh, and the shortstop Torres earlier than we thought they might. Yeah, um, and I, 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 again, I really scoured Wade's numbers last night and the night before. We had a waiver run in our league last night. I was thinking about picking him up, but I just don't like what I'm seeing right now. And maybe it's a small sample, maybe I'm off base, but uh, and we'll see how he does. He's going to get an opportunity, it looks like. Well, Jock, if you're not uh, on base with that uh, assessment, then you're joining Tyler Wade, who's seldom on base at the major league level. So what are they going to do in the outfield to replace Stanton? Arguably an even uh, bigger problem for them. Well, at least talent-wise, they seem to be in a little better shape with one-time prospect Clint Frazier getting Stanton's roster spot and perhaps most of the early uh, playing time. Now, Frazier's just two for ten in his early start since he came up, uh, but he's always had pretty decent skills. Uh, He's had concussion issues. He seems to be over that. He's one of these guys with plus power and decent speed who who could potentially get uh, a a 25 home run, 15 stolen base season somewhere in here if he he gets to playing time. He's never going to have much more than a 250 batting average. Um, The Yankees also brought in Mike Touchman over from Colorado as a left-handed bat that could spell or platoon Frazier. I think the best news here is uh, that Stanton's not expected to be out more than three weeks, and also that Aaron Hicks, who's now on the deal with back, back discomfort, He's reportedly begun baseball-related activities again and could rejoin the club before the end of April. So at least there's a light at the end of the tunnel in the in the outfield for the Yankees. Uh, the infield looks like the bigger problem longer term. And when you're thinking about the infield, to go back to that for a second, uh, 
DJ LeMahieu is a second baseman in Colorado. Is there any chance that he would end up back at second and they shop around in the in the minor league system or looking around somewhere else to get a third baseman to fill that gap rather than trying to fill the second base gap with a guy who may not be that good at second base? LeMahieu can play second. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think the Yankees might be thinking that way. I read something the other day, I forget where, where they're asking Greg Bird to start taking reps at third, which seems a little extreme, but you can tell they are thinking that way. And uh, maybe they do want to put uh, uh, DeLeMahieu back at second base. Not a lot of confidence in Tyler Wade from anyone these days. Well, not only are the Yankees dealing with a whole bunch of changes in their offensive lineup and, and on uh, out in the field, but the the uh, pitching rotation's been really shaken up a few times. Jonathan Loezaga, top prospect, has been recalled, and he's suddenly part of the rotation. It didn't look like he was going to be like five days ago. What does this look like right now? Well, you've got Severino on the DL, and you've got uh, CC Sabathia recovering from an angioplasty, and, a, and he's going to be—he's going to have to serve out a suspension. So the Yankees have openings in both. Uh, Louis Signa, I'm still having problems pronouncing that. I haven't heard that name too often. And and Domingo German are both interesting guys, if inexperienced. So I mean, at least they're going to be interesting for the next three, four weeks until the Yankees can get their rotation back in shape. Loesiga of the two is, I think, the really interesting guy. He's got a 9C prospect rating at BaseballHQ.com, which means kind of an all-star level talent with a 60 or 70% chance of attaining it. Uh, I like uh, Loesiga a lot. He's taken in all the leagues I'm in, which is an indication that he's no secret. But if he's available in your league, then by all means, uh, look him up and try to nab him early before it's too late. Uh, there's been lots of movement as well in Toronto, Jock. Uh, center fielder Kevin Pillar is no more. He was traded to the Giants. I talked about that with Nick uh, in the National League Player News Report. They get uh, a prospect back, a couple of sort of minor parts in Alan Hansen and Derek Law. And they got Socrates Brito from San Diego in a return for uh, some prospects and resulted in sending Anthony Alford back to the minors. There's a lot going on here. Sean Reed Foley got called up, then sent back down. Clearly the Blue Jays are rebuilding, but it seems like there's got to be some kind of order to this sooner or later, at least for a while. So what's going on with the Blue Jays? You know, in the, in the short term, it's obviously a problem. They got, they got shut out yesterday by, by, by Cleveland, uh, Trevor Bauer. That's no, uh, that's no shame in that. But uh, um, I, you got to like what the Blue Jays are doing, at least over the long haul, because they've really jump-started this, this rebuilding process. They got rid of Kendris Morales last year. They, they sent him shuffling off to, to Oakland. This week, it's, uh, they, they've, they've obviously sent uh, uh, Pilar now over to San Francisco. They're really clearing the decks, and they've got a lot of interesting outfield hitters right now. Uh, Randall Gritchick just got extended. He's going to be the primary center fielder. Billy McKinney and Teoscar Hernandez look like the primary corner outfielders, at least for this month. Um, Brito is, is kind of a poor man's Anthony Alford who got sent down, I, I think because they, they realized he needed to play every day and uh, he needed to develop a little more. Um, Brito has a has an interesting skill set, but he's 26, 27. He's never made enough contact at the major league level to be uh, uh, to be particularly effective. Hanson's another one of those guys, a one-time prospect uh, infielder who's now an infield outfield utility. He's going to get some at-bats in the outfield. At least the Blue Jays have a lot of young guys right now who, who can get at-bats and kind of work themselves in earlier in the year. On the other hand, 
it's not going to be real helpful with their rotation. I think wins are going to be few and far between for this for this club in April and May. It's a real young team. And until Vlad Guerrero and uh, Bo Bichette join the club later this year, uh, they're probably not going to gel at all until maybe the second half. So interesting team longer term, but for now this team looks like it's going to struggle. Yeah, and I think if you're Toronto and you want to f- figure out what to do and when to do it, now's the time to, to tank because, uh, you know, they're in a division with the Yankees, with Boston, and that's tough enough. And Tampa looks really good this year. They've really been smart about organizing their roster. I think I read somewhere that their uh, payroll is under $60 million, and they look like a 90-win team. They were a 90-win team last year, and they've actually got better. Uh, this is a very, very difficult division, and Toronto was going to be facing long odds in the first place. And now uh, you'd have to say, if you're going to rebuild, this would be the time to do it. The question is whether they can succeed at it. Uh, you mentioned Alfred being sent down. He, one of the reasons they talked about on the broadcast yesterday of the Cleveland-Toronto uh, game was that Alfred has options and Brito doesn't, so they, they couldn't send Brito down uh, without exposing him to waivers and didn't want to do that. You mentioned the rotation also uh, starting to cause some problems for Toronto. Ryan Barucki's on the DL. Clay Buchholz is on the DL. Clayton Richard is on the DL. And there's a real question whether any of them will be back and when. So when they come back, how effective will they be? We don't know. Elbow issues, flexor muscles issues. This is a real mess for Toronto as far as the rotation goes. So what are they going to do about it? Yeah, these aren't particularly optimistic uh, injuries either, are they? Uh, um, Barucki has uh, has uh, uh, pain in his elbow and uh, and and. Um, Buckholz the same way. Richard's dealing with a, a surgically repaired knee, and he wasn't that effective last year anyway. Um, the Blue the Blue Jays uh, brought up uh, um, Sean Reed Foley, and he got ripped in a, in his first start. I think it was against Baltimore um, recently. They sent him back down. They've inserted apparently Thomas. Is it Panone or Panone? I'm not sure, um, but he's a reliever who seems like a placeholder right now. Um, he he done well at the minor league levels he struggled at the higher levels he barely has a sub four era over 48 major league innings but his expected era is a little closer to five um i think his uh, his four scoreless innings versus the orioles uh, may have earned him this opportunity i'd personally stay away because of the situation you mentioned the ales the hitters i think are going to get to him eventually i like this guy trent thornton maybe you could tell me a little bit about him i know they got him from houston um his uh, his minor league track record isn't that great, but this is a guy who at least has a few pitches, and he and he threw very well last week in his first start. If you're going to take a pitching flyer, I would I would look at Thornton before I'd look at uh, at Tom Thomas Pannoni right now. Well, I I would look at them both probably in that order as well, but I don't think I want any part of either of them. Uh, um, Thornton did pitch well in his first outing, but. One outing doesn't make a season, and it's uh, so many games against those tough teams in the American League East. I just think unless the rules of your league make it so that this is worth uh, taking a gamble on or your own roster situation makes him worth taking a gamble on, then fine. But otherwise, boy, I, I don't know that, that, that this is a, uh, a good way to look either way. Yeah, no, I would agree. I'm, I'm really comparing between Pannone. Is it Pannone or Pannone? I, I'm not sure. Pannone. Panone. If if you're gonna if you're looking at Panone or Thornton and you and you've got a choice between the two, I think Thornton's the better bet. But you're absolutely right. Uh, this is a team that's in flux right now. They're not going to get a lot of wins, um, and particularly if your if your league has wins and you're worried about the ratios, stay away from uh, these these 
new guys in the Toronto rotation right now. It might seem attractive to look at Thornton. He uh, set a team record, I believe. He had seven or eight strikeouts in his debut at the major league level, um, which is you know really good. But he was pitching against the Detroit Tigers, which is uh, not exactly the most challenging lineup in the world to face. And like one outing, I'm sorry, it's just too too small of a sample for me to <laughs> make any huge long run comments on. Yeah, no, I, I I'm there. I'm right there with you. Well, speaking of Tampa, Joey Wendell went to the uh, injured list, and does this mean that there's going to be some playing time opportunities for the newly extended Brandon Lau? Yeah, well, you mentioned Tampa Bay, and, and this is a this is a crowded offense. This is a crowded team, uh, and yeah, they, they, they extended Brandon Lau. They clearly like him. He's a bat-first uh, second baseman. He's also been getting uh, outfield reps. He's got plus speed. It's a really tough break for Wendell and his owners. He had a fine rookie season, uh, but I, I'm thinking he could have trouble getting his at-bats back uh, since since the, the Rays clearly like Lau in here. Uh, um, they, they've got Lau, they've got Daniel Robertson, they've also got uh, Christian Arroyo, who used to be a prospect with the Giants. Um, um, so, uh, Wendell, when he gets back uh, uh, from the from the DL with his hamstring uh, issues, uh, he's he's going to have to hit the play, and uh, he's got his work cut out for him. Lau is been given 20 at bats so far and that tells you a little bit too he's just four for 20 but good power is a middle infielder so it'll be interesting to see what happens there I think of all the things you said there Jock the most important is that Tampa has given this guy a contract extension already we're seeing the smarter teams trying to lock up their young talent early because I think they're all this has never been mentioned but this is just my point of view I think they're all the owners uh, the, the teams are getting really scared about the prospect of the next CBA and there's going to be big changes to how players are paid especially early in their careers so I think they're trying to lock in guys now with the promise of you know a, a decent uh, level of pay for them way ahead of schedule because come the next CBA, I think they all those players are going to say, wait a second, we're now behind schedule and they'll have the wool pull, pulled over their eyes. But the teams wouldn't be doing that, like in the case of Tampa, they wouldn't be doing that if they didn't think that Brandon Lau was something worth hanging on to. That's right. They're not only going to develop him, they like him, obviously. They've, they've shown that with the extension, but now they've got a commitment to him. So they really they really should be playing him uh, because who knows? He, he could be the next guy on the trade block down the road. But uh, it, it's clear where the wind is blowing over there in second base in Tampa Bay. Finally, in Kansas City, they've got a closing situation. Seems like they've had that ever since uh, they had that tremendous bullpen that all walked away, Wade Davis and Herrera and uh, those guys. Uh, Brad Boxberger was thought to be the guy in Kansas City, but he got a save on opening day, then he's been awful since, four runs in his next two innings. So they demoted Ian Kennedy from the rotation to make him the closer, or at least into the bullpen. He gets a save opportunity versus Minnesota. He blows it. Uh, where do the Royals go from here and... Let's face it, is this even a situation worth trying to figure out? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I'm looking at our the way we're projecting playing time on the Kansas City Royal team page at Baseball HQ, and I'm seeing uh, Willie Peralta with 45% of the saves projected. So we're still projecting him as getting most of the saves, and we, we know how iffy and how, how crummy Willie Peralta can be. So this is not a good situation. I, I personally think Boxberger would be the favorite here, but I'm not sure it's worth trying to guess here, given the the limited wins that Kansas City is going to get and the limited talent in that bullpen. It's really a pretty pretty bad pen. Uh, I liked uh, Kyle Zimmer enter, entering the year. He was healthy and he's throwing mid 90s. But I also walk, watched him walk uh, three straight hitters the other day against Detroit. Uh, so 
He's still got some learning to do. He may not be ready for prime time. I'd personally be staying away from this situation if you can. And in most uh, mixed leagues, you probably can stay away from it. You'd have to be fairly desperate to be looking for saves from Kansas City anyway. As you said, they're just not going to win a lot of games. But in an only league format, I think there's going to be bidding on these situations. And of the three, supposing you were in an American League only format, Jock, you've got your choice between Kennedy, Peralta, and Boxberger. You said you'd probably prefer Boxberger of the three? Yeah, I would just because of his experience, and he's still getting the swing and miss. Uh, he his control is, is has been pretty bad, but that has gone up and down. It's never really good. Uh, he's he's the guy who's he's the one guy in that group who saved thirty games. So I'll I'll stick with the with the uh, the guy who's done it. I'm going to go with Ian Kennedy. I think uh, Jock and. The reason I think uh, that Boxberger's had more saves is that he he was a closer. He was a reliever, and Kennedy wasn't. But I think Kennedy, in the short run, was a was a pretty good starter when he could stay healthy. And I, I like the skills, and I think they're 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 grasping at straws just like we are. So he may get a, a few opportunities, and we know that so much is going to depend on the timing over the next you know five to ten games. If somebody gets a chance and make gets a save, gets another chance, gets another save, all of a sudden that's one less problem for the Kansas City Royals to have to worry about. They'll just say, okay, now we know who our closer is until he blows it down the road. So I think this is a very volatile situation, and we should be looking at it if you do think you need saves from Kansas City. Yeah, I think you're right. And the, and the real the real wild card in that is is how, how Kennedy's stuff will play up in the bullpen. A lot of times uh, um, rotation guys leave the rotation, they get to the bullpen, and they're, they're, all of a sudden they add some velocity. Looks like it's ticking up a little bit in the early going, and he's actually over four games, or I'm sorry, over, uh, what is it, uh, four point, uh, over three innings, uh, he's actually getting more swing and misses than he got as a starter. And, and my problem with Kennedy as a, as a starter is that recently his dominance has just taken a dive in the the control hasn't been that great to make up for it. But you could be right. Out of the bullpen, he could be a completely different animal. All right, Jock, an interesting week, uh, a lot to talk about, and uh, it'll continue next week, I'm sure. Look forward to talking to you then. Sounds good, PD. See you then. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat for Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our speculator column, analyst Ryan Bloomfield discusses the first week and staining his deck with pictures. In Rotisserie Gaming, that Steve Gardner column you heard about with his Week 1 Tuffy Awards. And in Scouting, the Daily Call-Ups report has comments on call-ups like Jonathan Loezaga. We talked about him earlier with Jock, Anthony Alford, and John Duplantier. And those are just three articles among literally dozens. A small sample of all the great content you'll find all the time at Baseball HQ. Player performance validation in facts and flukes. News updates in playing time today. Roster forecasting and playing time tomorrow. We have those buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relief pitchers. There's fantasy market analysis and injury analysis, plus tools like the player projections, daily dashboard, leading indicators. It's all kinds of content and tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. The best. right field and deep. Way back. Going, going, gone. Another home run for Reggie Jackson. And the Yankees. 
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back. Let's keep going, man. Last week, your co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com wrote an article about how to use the site in season to manage your fantasy rosters. We know about all the preseason draft prep tools at the site, but what are some of the key tools subscribers can use once the season is underway, as it is for most of us? Yes, the uh, you know sort of the attention shifts. The uh, if I look at like tracking for you know highest traffic areas of the site, you know the custom draft guide and the projections get a ton of traffic in February and March, of course, and now we start to see some of the uh, the in season reports and the uh, you know, starting pitcher matchups tool and the um, you know sort of our, our weekend content that focuses on getting everyone ready for fab and transactions. It's funny our. Uh, Site traffic tends to bubble toward the weekends as everyone uh, gathers for their uh, doing the research for their weekly fab or uh, <clears throat> transaction cycle. So it's definitely a different mode, but it's nice to. Uh, it's always more fun to. Uh, it's always a fun uh, thing to do in the first week of April to bring all of the uh, sort of the in season tools to life. You know, the issue that comes to mind for me sometimes is that player analysis. Uh, focuses mostly on players who are already spoken for in most draft situations. Uh, I saw at another site that I was looking at an, an analysis that suggested we should be buying low on Juan Soto because he's hitting 190 or whatever at the time. But you know, what kind of league is going to have Juan Soto available? Despite, you know, after five games of 190. But there has to be some utility in assessing these rostered players. So what application does the analysis have if we assume that a player is not going to be available through free agent or waivers acquisition? What's the use of it? Well, you know, some of it is just, you know, getting conversations going on the trade market, of course, if your league allows trading. And yeah, a lot of it is below the line for uh, a lot of the analysis for free agency. But then, you know, some of the kind of getting back to our earlier conversation, validating the performance or a change in performance of guys who are on your roster could influence some of your fab decisions too. We were talking about D Gordon earlier. And if you're, you know, even after one week, if you're a little more confident in D Gordon hitting his stolen base number, than you were in March when maybe you, uh, you know, grabbed him, but you know, hedged a little with some other stolen base guys, maybe that's either a trade opportunity for you or you don't need to worry so much about grabbing, uh, you know, somebody who steals two stolen bases, uh, this week and is going to get some fab attention because of that. You can uh, point your press, precious uh, fab dollars elsewhere. That said, BaseballHQ.com does have coverage in season that does identify players who are going to be available in the free agent pools. Give us a quick run through some of those. Yeah, so uh, you know these tend, like I said, these tend to cluster on the weekend on the site in our publishing schedule. Uh, you know, there's a, the first one that comes to mind is the Market Pulse column. You know, in season that's sort of. The, excuse me, uh, preseason, that's sort of our HQ versus the ADP comparison and trying to find, uh, you know, values in the draft pool in season that turns into your uh, weekly fab log. Brad Coleman does a great job with the in season tool running a couple of uh, filters of, you know, unowned players in uh, some uh, standard leagues, some recently dropped players and sort of keeping a log of, you know, he puts up maybe, you know, 20, 30 names a week of uh, guys who should be on your radar screen at dip- different league depths. So it's a great resource to 
you know, check in on if you're looking for some names that you should take a deeper dive on or check and see if they're available in your week come Sunday Night Fab or whenever your transactions are. Uh, then there's uh, the watch list, which won't be back for another week or two as the minor league season heats up. But Alec Dopp uh, runs that uh, weekly feature and goes ahead and run, and uh, sort of keeps an eye on the minor leagues for guys who are near a call-up. It's not necessarily the, you know, always the premium prospects, but it's guys who are performing or, you know, sort of sticking a claim in the minors to a role. And then Alec tries to sort of map them to major league opportunities and say, hey, look, this guy in – uh, you know, in the, uh, you know, th- this guy in Baltimore is struggling. So maybe you'll see this other guy get called up to replace him in a couple of weeks. If that continues, you might want to tuck him away now, that kind of analysis, which is you know super valuable for the, you know, that's the, you know, the idea is to get out, get out in front of those moves and, you know, be able to get them, you know, really cheap and fab before they're the flavor of the week after they get called up and get a couple of hits. Uh, and then the, uh, the third component of that is of course, uh, injuries which are sort of the trigger for a lot of these moves and that's uh you know matt cedarholm's big hurt column runs uh updates several times a week during the season with uh you know injury analysis of uh you know what the uh you know what the injury is what our historical data from our injury log says is the average duration for that injury or what the uh you know what the expected return is or should we expect diminished performance on return all of those sorts of questions so you put those three together running on the site on Saturdays and Sundays, and it should give you a nice overview of, uh, you know, sort of frame the question of what you're trying to accomplish in your transaction period. What tools are available at the site for the growing legions of daily fantasy players? Yeah, so you know, that starts with the starting pitcher matchups tool, uh, where we, uh, you know, quite successfully rate the uh, pitchers, uh, you know, for each individual start. There was a there was a funny exchange this week um, where somebody posted that we had a very good rating for. Matt Boyd in Yankee Stadium, um, and that rating was very much at odds with the Vegas line for the game. Um, and of course, turned out that in that particular instance, Boyd pitched great, struck out I think thirteen in six and a third innings or something like that. So that was uh, you know po- a point for our tool. But um, you know, it's not always going to work that way. You know, the uh, you know in the aggregate, we've tested that tool and it, run- and it works very well for predicting individual star performance. But if it was perfect, we'd all be laying on a beach somewhere, right? So. Yeah. You know, it's uh, but that's a tool for daily games, both for identifying starting pitchers and for identifying, you know, starting pitchers you want to target, and also ones you want to target hitters against. Uh, and then uh, you, you know that, that you can. We don't need to tell you that you know, say Andrew Cash is pitching today, and you need uh, you should be racking up some hitters against them. But there are some, there are always some more subtle plays where you see uh, a negative rating that doesn't necessarily, uh, you know come to mind as first glance as a pitcher you'd expect to be at the bottom of that list but when you look at it a little more detail it makes some sense and those are some opportunities to uh that you can extend to the hitters as well and season-long players can take advantage of those daily tools in some instances as well can they not oh sure on the starting pitcher tool we've got a uh you know we've, in addition to the one day starting pitcher ratings we run those you know out eight days so people can use those ratings to set their matchups for the week um Based on based on the uh, scores and the opponents, et cetera, and uh, we're also sort of beta testing right now. We've rolled we rolled out last week, and we'll continue to roll out a. Uh, you're trying to get to sort of one of the other sort of holy grails in our tool set is a hitter equivalent of the uh, of the matchups tool. Uh, we still don't really think it makes sense to do on a daily basis, but we're trying to do it on a weekly basis to sort of give a dashboard of of, of what hitters are facing in the coming week in terms of opposition. 
And I know that you're test driving a new hitter matchups tool. How's that going to work? Yeah, so uh, I was just hinting at that. The uh, you know the, what we've showed last week is sort of a first iteration, and I'm sure we'll uh, continue to tweak it over the next couple of weeks until we settle on a final design. But the idea is to show a sort of a dashboard for what hitters are facing in a couple of, in the coming weeks. Both you know sort of right now from sort of three lenses. First of all, uh, lefty versus righty opponents, so you get uh, opposing starters, so you get the idea for your platoon splits you know i think the idea the example we used last week that it was that uh arizona was facing a bunch of lefties so that you were probably going to see a lot of wilmer flores and christian walker and not a lot of uh jake lamb and david peralta or peralta might play but you might not want them uh so trying to uh you know give the week ahead from a platoon perspective also from a average starting pitcher rating perspective so you can see the sort of the quality of opposing pitchers as in, as well as the handedness, and then the third element is uh, the park factors, so you can get a sense of uh, you know everybody knows to start all your pitchers when they're going to cores, but you know maybe the uh, you know some of the more subtle ballpark factors like you know that Arizona is not that good anymore with the humidor, and that you know Cincinnati is a sneaky good place for home runs, that sort of thing. So, but we figure so in the first iteration last week we provided the park factors the strength of the opposing pitchers and the hand handedness of the opposing pitchers for the entire week and figured that was sort of a dashboard that you could use to make your hitter lineup decisions for the week. And uh, we got a bunch of great feedback from subscribers about what else they want to see. And we'll try to incorporate that as we continue to sort of iterate the design over the next few weeks. There's a column double dipping. Uh, it could be a real advantage for players who have to make their weekly moves rather than daily moves. How does double dipping work? Yeah, so double dipping is our uh, focus column on two start pitchers. Uh, you can sort of get that information from, like I said, the starting pitcher matchup tool that runs in an eight day mode, so you can go in and see who is pitching twice. But Brian Rudd writes that column every weekend; does has done a great job with it for a couple of years. He basically goes through the pitchers who are scheduled for two starts, with you know, sort of grouping them the same way we do in the daily matchups column into you know strong and weak starts, and then you know a middle ground and sort of identifying who the uh, who the plays are. And one of the under one of the underrated components of that that he also does is he also tries to look a week out and project who's going to get two starts in the week following so he writes that column every sunday and he's talking basically trying to preview who the two star pitchers are going to be the following week as well because sometimes you know in leagues where there's a lot of competition for those two star pitchers that you know you need to claim them a week in advance so that's uh for the regular readers of that column that's one additional feature that the uh the readers always comment is super beneficial to them uh, in part one of our talk, Ray, I mentioned the Facts and Flukes Spotlight articles we've been running for a few years now that really dig deep into individual players, and I think uh, you, you'd agree that we get more into the advanced stats on those features than in uh, the regular Facts and Flukes articles, which are shorter and have more players in them. So give us the overview of the Spotlight articles, and when will we be seeing them? Yeah, those are super fun to write. I know you write them too, and they're one of, I, I always do you know two or three of them a year, and they're one of the more enjoyable projects I get to take is that you can find a, you know, some of the fun of it is finding a player and just saying like, I want to go super deep dive on them. And the way it works is you sort of identify the player before you know what the answer is. You might sit here and say that, you know, one of those guys, like we were talking about in part one, like Domingo Santana would be a great one. You know, he looks interesting. I want to go, you know, under the hood and, you know, pull apart all the metrics from, you know, the traditional HQ metrics to the stat cast metrics to you know, getting to a bunch of splits or, you know, um, 
spray charts and all those sorts of things. Basically, you know, really throw the kitchen sink at it and see what we can figure out in terms of what's different about the guy this year. Um, they are they're super fun to write. Like I said, uh, we'll run. We'll let the sample size bake for a little bit before we get into those. Uh, probably the first week of May, we'll fire those up, and we usually run those. You know, we'll do one of those a week for you know, maybe 15 weeks, something like that. We'll run them from early May, probably through the end of July, something like that. One of the things I really enjoy about writing the Facts of Fluke Spotlight articles is the opportunity to get into some graphic presentations of the data that, again, is not something that is normally part of the regular Facts and Flukes column because there's just not the space when you're doing five guys in a week. But I, I really like digging into the data and then trying to represent them visually. I know people like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, some of the, uh, you know, if you run an article that goes into one guy, like as we do and you're writing 12, 1500 words on a single player and you just lay out, you know, in traditional fat fluke style data table after data table, you get, you know, you get people's eyes glazing over. So certainly you're right. A, uh, a glitzy graphic presentation is always one way to keep the reader engaged as you go sort of peel back the layers on the onion of the player all the way down to uh, all the way down to the base level, try to figure out what's making them tick. And overall, Ray, how much new content gets added every week during the season? You know, we're you know as we settle into uh, you know full you know sort of full blast mode here. Uh, you know, we're in probably pushing you know thirty five to forty columns a week. It's you know five a day is a good baseline, and some days there are more than that. We do tend to cluster it a little bit more on the weekends, like I said, since a lot of people are you know might tune out for a couple of days during the week, but then come back and uh, you know zero in on the weekend when they're changing their lineups or making their fat bids or whatever. So uh, the overall number is probably in the 35 to 40 range. And, you know, I, I think the, the lowest you would ever see in a day is four and typical is five to six. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com. And Ray, a little earlier, we were talking about some facts and flukes among this year's hitters so far. Let's look at some pitchers, and I'd like you to start with Marcus Stroman, who in the early going seems to have figured out some things in the offseason and was widely touted as a potential bounce-back sleeper. So are you real excited about the 142 ERA and the 8.5 strikeouts per nine? making him look like a fact or does the 126 whip and 3.9 walks per nine mark him as a fluke you know i was pretty optimistic about him coming into the season and i own him a couple of places uh you know he's sort of an anomaly in this day and age because you know the strikeout rate hasn't been there even when he's been good but he's so effective with the ground balls and one of the things that i forget if it was you and i who talked about it on the you know, in an earlier appearance on the show, or maybe we talked about it in New York, is the uh, you know, Toronto defense, should, you know, the infield defense there should be better too. And, uh, you know, that, that should certainly help Stroman's ground ball rate. So I thought there were some reasons for optimism. Uh, we sort of touched on in the earlier part of the show some of the reasons for skepticism too, and that his, uh, you know, the quality of opposition in the first couple starts uh, is a little questionable. He's another guy who's faced uh, Detroit and Baltimore so far. But, you know, the velocity, I think, is up a tick. And uh, the swing strike rate, rate looks a lot better. Uh, it'll take a little longer to figure out how much of that is just uh, bad hitters swing through his stuff or how much, or whether his stuff is actually sharper or better. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic there. 
When we were talking about hitters, a potential first-round talent uh, coming out of nowhere, Domingo Santana's name came up. On the mound, uh, Jose Barrios has looked pretty good so far this year. Three earned runs in 14 innings. I think his ERA is barely over two. His whip is way under one. 14 strikeouts, only one walk. All really good signs. How do you like his chances for this early performance to be a fact and for Barrios to be a breakout pitcher in 2019? I I own a ton of Barrios. I was pretty... uh... I was pretty excited about him in the preseason. Uh, certainly the two starts are pretty promising, but, you know, sort of the same caveats apply as Stroman. He faced the, uh, you know, the the, the uh, diminished carcass of the Indians lineup in his first start and then had, uh, had Kansas City this week. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, that's a little bit of a reason for concern. But on the other hand, unlike the Toronto guys, he pitches in the AL Central all year. And especially if Cleveland doesn't get going, that's a pretty uh, – Favorable, favorable place to pitch in terms of quality of opposition. So maybe he's a little more able to keep it going. Uh, the lack of walks is, you know, just enormous for him. If he uh, keeps pounding the strike zone, then the, you know, good things are going to happen. But you know, already looking at our sub indicators, like you said, he's only got one walk, but his uh, his first his first first pitch strike percentage is pretty low. So um, it might just be that. Uh, you know, he's taking advantage of some of those bad hitters. I'm not sure. You know, we'll have to watch as those metrics converge. Either the uh, if he keeps not walking anybody, the first pitch strike rate is going to get better, or more likely, uh, if the first pitch strike rate stays as bad as it has been through two starts, then you know the walks are eventually going to come. So, as is the answer to all of these questions, I guess the jury's still out. Chris Sale so far, fact or fluke? Uh, you know, um, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, you know, I'm not terribly worried about him uh, I, I haven't managed to get eyes on either of his starts um for more than you know some highlights or an inning here or there obviously you know it's well documented the velocity's down uh the red sox were really slow with him and with their whole staff in, in particular actually in uh, bringing him along in spring training so I, th- I think the occam's razor explanation there is that he's just you know, roughly two weeks behind everybody else at this point. And what we're seeing from him is probably the equivalent of like a March 20th start for everybody else. And he'll probably walk in in a couple of weeks. Three veteran starters look pretty fantastic so far this year. Uh, Marco Gonzalez, Mark, Mike Fires, and Jordan Zimmerman, who has a 066 ERA, 059 whip after his first two starts. Of any of these guys, facty or fluky? I think they're probably all mostly fluky. If I'm interested in one more than the others, it's probably fires just for the team context. And that's in, you know, in a couple of different perspectives, you know, very good ballpark, you know, good team, good lineup, good bullpen around behind him. And in particular, very, very good, good defense. So, you know, he's, you know, these are all pretty unremarkable pitchers, but seems to be that fires is, you know, got a very good support structure around him in in just about every aspect that a pitcher cares about from, you know, support from the bullpen, support from his defense, and support from his offense. So if I was going to gamble on one of these guys, he would probably be the choice. Uh, Madison Bumgarner was sporting a 138-100 after his first two starts. Uh, is this a bettable bounce-back fact or a short-run fluke? Yeah, we, we, you know, we touched on him a little bit earlier, and, you know, there, were, there was some – you know, it seemed like there was a lot of optimism after his opening day start, and then uh, things went a little less well in his uh, second start versus the Dodgers. He didn't get 
you know, he didn't exactly get creamed. Oh, I'm sorry. He pitched pretty well that game. So he's had two good starts now. Um, but the, the um, you know, the strikeouts were down. The swinging strikes were down against a better Dodger offense. And the Dodger offense, you know, they do their team pretzel thing. But they also, um, you know, they're more vulnerable to left-handed pitching. So that that was a favorable spot for him. You know, Bumpgarner isn't, um, you know, his, dra- his draft price was too... Uh, expensive for me this spring, so I don't I don't own him anywhere. But that doesn't mean he's going to go careening off the cliff. That that ballpark, that division, still a pretty good place to pitch. So he should be, you know, he should be pretty reasonable this year. He's just not, um, you know, I, I happen to not have any shares of him though. It seems to me, Ray, that bullpens have been unusually volatile already. We've seen some turmoil in closer situations around the league. The Red Sox use their closer Matt Barnes to get a critical out in a leverage situation on Wednesday in Oakland and used Ryan Brazier for his first big league save. You're a Boston guy. What's the likelihood that Alex Cora and the Sox are going to continue managing by leverage rather than by using the established closer role? I think it's pretty likely. I think that, um, you know, they like you said, they used Barnes earlier and then closed with Brazier uh, the other night, and that's after Barnes had gotten a save or two up in Seattle to start the season. Um, I, I think that they're one of the teams that's more conscious of workload and pitcher, you know, reliever freshness than assigned roles. And you might, you know, in addition to seeing Barnes occasionally used in a higher leverage situation in the eighth inning rather than the ninth, they certainly do like him coming into jams and they, they were using him extensively that way in the postseason last year. It's one reason I didn't think he would be the primary closer this year is because they like him in that role so much. But I think they also like not using pitchers on back-to-back days where they can avoid it. And you might see Barnes close one day and if he throws a few too many pitches than they're comfortable with, come back the next day with just Brazier in the same role. Um, but, you know, the larger issue there is that they're going to need more than two relievers they can trust, and that might mean an acquisition to, you know, fortify the seventh and eighth inning at some point, or it might mean an acquisition of the quote-unquote proven closer that, you know, demotes both Barnes and Brazier into, yeah, this, the, more of the setup role they were in in front of Kimbrell last year. So um, I would, you know, I would take the under on 25 saves for Barnes and Brazier right now. I think you might see double digits from both of them, but I don't know that there are 40 saves to be had by members of the current Boston bullpen. You mentioned earlier that uh, David Robertson plays a role on one of your league teams, and that has you worried about your save situation. He's been really bad in Philadelphia so far. I think he's got an 18 ERA, four earned runs in just two innings. He's given up five walks. He's only got one strikeout. Uh, Ten of 15 batters have reached against him. Are Robertson's early struggles a fact or a fluke for you? I mean, you got to start asking the question of whether or not he's healthy because you know when David Robertson's healthy, he doesn't pitch like that. So, I mean, maybe it's just a couple of bad games, but... But um, and maybe a couple of days off will straighten him out, or maybe there's a mechanical thing that's got to get straightened out. Anytime a guy like that changes teams, you wonder if the new pitching coach has you know introduced something that hasn't quite taken hold yet, or something like that. Uh, the good news is in the league where I own Robertson, I own Sir Anthony Dominguez too. So if Robertson goes to the DL, that might be okay. But I'm also you know this is Gabe Kapler and about 17 guys got at least one save last year. So as if Robertson melts down, I'm not only holding Dominguez, but I'm sort of 
keeping an eye out for what's behind door number three. So I've got an eye on uh, you know Hector Neris this weekend. Uh, if you if I can slide him onto that roster or a couple of other rosters elsewhere, because um, you know we thought Robertson was sort of going to be the you know first head of a multi-headed dragon with Kapler here, and if he's not, then you know there might be it might just mean somebody else is going to step into that role because it's still so far seems like it's not in Kapler's DNA to just give it, give one guy the ball and leave him alone. And of course, the the Phillies have aspirations. Clearly, they spent a lot of money on Bryce Harper. They invested quite a bit of assets in acquiring JT Realmuto. They, I think, they think they're a playoff team that could have a long run, and they may think that they need an established closer to do that. Maybe they're smarter than that. We'll have to wait and see. But uh, they have cap room of about sixteen million dollars. So Craig Kimbrell's name keeps floating up. Yeah, and you know, you, you do have to wonder about that because you know I was watching the game that the game the other day where Robertson wasn't in a save situation, but it's almost worse than that. And that the Phillies had just tied the game in, I forget it was the eighth or the ninth inning. Um, but then, you know, the game newly tied and the Phillies coming back in Washington against, you know, a, you know, important division rival, you know, Robertson comes in in a tie game in the bottom of the ninth, gives up one hit and then three straight walks to lose the game. I mean, that's just, you know, if, if you're from coming at it from the Philly perspective, that's just, that just can't happen. So whether they, you know, do something about it in terms of not giving him the next, uh, you know, tied or safe situation like that and going to somebody else, or if it's, you know, how long they wait before they look outside the organization to further deepen that bullpen. You can imagine that only has to happen a couple of times before they take drastic action. Well, as I said, the bullpen situations are really fluid in a lot of a lot of teams around Major League Baseball, but some of them are well-established. Which closers do you think are really solidly safe bets right now? I mean, it's a pretty short list, right? <laughs> it's, um, yeah. you know... It, it, it seems like more teams are getting into the. We saw this problem in the preseason. More teams are getting into the, um, you know, a shared responsibility here, which you know, which is great. You and I have talked about that being a more efficient use of resources on this podcast for, you know, years now. And it seems like what you know, more and more teams are getting religion about it. So, I mean, you can count. You know, there's. I'm looking at our projections right now. We've got somewhere around a dozen guys present. Excuse me, projected for. Uh, like 28 saves or more. Actually, it's probably more like 15 or 18. Um, but, I, you know, you can look at that list and, like, you know, does that mean I'm not worried about any of those guys? No, I'm worried about them. I'm worried about the world as Chapman because it looks like he's not all that durable. I'm sure as heck worried about Cody Allen in Los Angeles. I mean, so if you take that list of 15 to 18, I could probably raise legitimate questions about, you know, certainly five to eight of them. So, I mean, the the the, the mortal lock closers who I, you know, I'm fully confident in that list. Has got to, it's probably no longer than 10. And who's on it? I, I'm going to, I'll make a few guesses myself, but. To... Uh, so going from the top in terms of our projections, uh, Hand, Jansen, Vasquez, Diaz, um, Doolittle, as long as he's healthy, I'll count him. Uh, Asuna, Trinan, Yates. Um, I'd even put. You know, there's a tier there, and then we can talk about, you know, Colome and Giles and Alvarado and Leclerc. Uh, that's probably about it. What did I name? Eight, you know, ten or twelve there. In you know, you sort of a you know, sort of one A and one B list. That's it gets pretty hard after that to name guys who I fully trust. Now, hey, Shane Green has five saves already. Uh, maybe he'll get to forty again. He's done it before. Um, but I, I, you know, I can't. 
he's got some security there, but I can't put him up. And he's just not as skilled as those other guys. Yeah, I like Green as a guy I think that could survive the long run and paradoxically somewhat, I think part of it's because he isn't that skilled and if you're a a, a, a team down the road looking for bullpen help, you're going to look around and say, hey, Detroit's offering us Shane Green. And you go, yeah, we don't need Shane Green. We got lots of Shane Greens. What we need is somebody who can like get strikeouts, get no walks, uh, have a have a 140 ERA instead of a 440 ERA. We'll pass on Shane Green, thanks. And I, I can't see Detroit being able to deal him anywhere, frankly. No, it's true. And but I mean, and by the same token, they could have, you know, they're not sort of sweating every win and loss the way that some of the uh, contenders are. So if he blows up a couple of times, it doesn't mean they're going to make a, make a quick change there, even though Joe Jimenez is probably a, a more skilled pitcher. You know, uh, it was, uh, was not long ago that Jim Johnson was banging out um, – Super big save totals with uh, you know skills that did not warrant it at all. Maybe Green, Green might end up uh, hanging up hanging up a season or a couple of seasons like that here. Well, again, from your lips to God's ear, he's um, he's my closer on my tout team, and and I think also Joe Jimenez is a, a more skilled pitcher. But Detroit has a financial incentive not to let him close games because at some point he's going to hit arbitration, and if his agent can say, "Look at all these saves," then all of a sudden the arbitrator says, "Yeah, you're right. Uh, he deserves more money." So it's it, it's inter- it's in Detroit's interest to slow play Joe Jimenez as far as getting actual saves, and he's probably more likely to have trade value because he's got legit skills that other teams would want to put in their bullpen. So, you know, if there's one of them to get traded in July, it might be him and us before green. It might very well be. That's exactly right. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Ray Murphy from Baseball HQ Radio, the co-general manager there. Uh, Ray, let's bring these runners home with some early boons and banes. We've been talking about flukes and facts and players you think uh, our listeners should be thinking about. Let's look at some buy lows, some sell highs, however you want to define it based on the early season. We'll start with your boons. These are good performance facts or bad performance flukes, guys you think owners should target in their leagues or hold on to them if they have them. Who's a boon hitter for you in the American League? Um, You know, I I can't put too much stock in the you know, in the one-week results. So these are going to be a combination of one-week week results plus positions I've sort of held before the season started. Uh, American League hitter, I'll go with Jay Bruce, um, mostly because, he, he, if nothing else, he's established he's healthy, and uh, he's had a couple home runs already, and we had him as a, a cheap power source coming into this year. And, you know, so far the early returns on that seem like he's fully capable of delivering what we thought there. I wanted Jay Bruce in practically every draft I was in, and I don't think I got a single share. Uh, who's a boon hitter for you in the National League? All right, so here's one that has sort of swayed me in the first week. Um, I, I've, for some reason, I've ended up watching a lot of the Mets, and I've seen a lot of Pete Alonso, and I'm super impressed. Um, you know, the, so, somebody on Twitter, I was uh, Matt Modica or one of the NFBC guys, uh, said that he was uh, Matt Wright's the Athletic too. I, I think he said he was going to end up being the Mets Aaron Judge, and after watching him for a week, I, I could, you know, certainly a physical similarity. But on top of that, you know, Alonzo, um, it seems like every time I happen to put eyes on him, he's absolutely murdering a baseball. So um, he's, I don't own any of him, but I'm, I'm kind of wishing I did. We saw Pete Alonso, and he was still Peter Alonso at the time, at the uh, Arizona Fall League during First Pitch Arizona last year. And uh, he, he's a big guy. He reminded me of Jim Tomei in his build. And, of course, if he's if he's Jim Tomei, you could do a lot worse. But 
something that everybody noticed because it was fairly obvious, despite he made one or two sensational plays in the field that were mostly look what I found kind of things, he's a pretty bad fielder. Like, I mean really bad. And they don't have a DH to hide him. Uh, what are they going to do about him if his glove is just as awful as it looks like it's going to be? You know, it's first base. They could probably live with it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, Ron was telling us, uh, Ron Chandler was telling us uh, somewhere on the first pitch tour that, you know, it did seem like in, you know, Ron saw a lot of the Mets down at Port St. Lucie this spring, and it did look, look like he had made some, uh, you know, some concerted effort in that area, both in uh, sort of remolding his body type and also trying to improve his uh, agility around the bag. So, uh, you know, maybe, you know, like we said, if he hits like this, the standard for being able to stay at first base is a, is a pretty low bar, but, uh, you know, he at least seems to understand that that's, that that's part of the deal. He's, he's got to make sure he's not a, you know, not a complete statue over there. Yeah, it's interesting that usually when we think about good hitting first baseman, and they all tend to be good hitting first baseman, that's why they're over there. It's like we're pleasantly surprised when they can field the position. John Olrood was a really good fielder. Keith Hernandez, speaking of the Mets, was a really good fielder. But it wasn't like we were saying, oh, that guy's the normal level and all these other guys suck. We were saying the normal level is that everybody sucks except for these handful of guys who are really can really pick it over there. Yeah, hey, you know what to do with that glove? Wow, that's great. Yeah, yeah. he put it on the right way around and everything, and on the correct hand. It's a start. Uh, over to the mound in the American League, who's a boon pitcher for you? Um, I think we touched on him earlier, but uh, I caught uh, the last inning or so of that outing that Matt Boyd had in New York against the Yankees. And now, to be fair, it's a pretty watered-down Yankee lineup right now with uh, – you know, no Gregorius, no Stanton, no Andujar. But, I mean, you don't see a lot of pitchers going to New York and, you know, I don't care who's in the Yankee lineup. You don't see a lot of them going there and throw seven innings and strike out 13. So, uh, you know, Boyd was some guy, was a guy who some of the advanced metrics liked. You know, we saw some growth last year. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, not going to get a lot of team support in Detroit. But that, that as we've said before in different contexts, that that AL Central is not a bad place to pitch. So, uh, you know, Boyd might uh, Boyd might have, might have some sneaky value. Uh, you don't often find pitchers on, uh, on on bad teams like that, but Boyd might be something of the exception. And one of those guys who, for years, the touts have been saying, this guy's skills indicate you should really be interested in grabbing him, and one of these years it's going to work out, right? Uh, it has to sooner or later, you'd think. Uh, in the National League, who's a boon pitcher for you? Uh, you know, th- this is a one-start sample, so I'm you know throwing all the appropriate grains of salt on it. But um, the uh, Tyler Molly had a really good start for the Reds yesterday. Uh, it was his first start of the year, uh, but he but he was a guy who I was sort of interested in. You know, again going back to last year, there were some hints in his skill set that you know he should be better than this. And then there was the much ballyhooed Reds change in pitching coaches this year and most of the attention got paid to you know what that was going to mean for Sonny Gray coming over from the Yankees but you know Molly had a good start and there's a lot of uh changed context there in Cincinnati so I'm gonna uh I I think about the only thing I can say definitively is I'm gonna watch his next start more closely Ray Murphy's Boons, Jay Bruce of Seattle, Pete Alonzo of New York, uh, Matt Boyd of Detroit, Tyler Molly in Cincinnati. Ray, let's go to your Baines. These are guys who are having good performances that are flukes or bad performances that are facts. These are guys who should be sold or avoided in your league's player markets. Uh, who's a Bane hitter for you, Ray, in the American League? 
Um, I'm going to go with Eduardo Nunez. Uh, I don't think we talked about him, but he was on your outline as someone who had uh, stolen a couple of bases early and might have some sneaky value. Um, I'm not, he's someone who I've sort of been off all spring, mostly for the team context reasons. Uh, you know, he's getting play right now because Pedroia wasn't ready to start the year, but I think Pedroia is going to be back maybe as early as this coming week. And uh, obviously, as long as Pedroia stays healthy, he's going to get a decent chunk of the second base at bats, even if it's something less than every day. Um, and the Red Sox seem particularly committed to sticking with uh, Raphael Devers at third base, uh, you know, versus lefties, versus righties, etc. So, you know, Nunez, I'm sure, could steal some starts there. But, you know, if Pedroia is healthy and if Devers is hitting, then I'm not sure there's much playing time to be had for Nunez. So um, I, I don't know that um, even if, the, you know, it's great that he's running a little bit and, you know, his legs haven't been healthy in a couple of years. So if the stolen bases are a sign that his legs are back, I mean, that's good news. But I'm not sure how many opportunities he's going to get to show that. In the National League, who's a Bane hitter for you? Um, I'm going to go with Max Muncy. Just, uh, you know, it's hard to read how that Dodgers team pretzel thing, uh, I think we mentioned earlier, is, is going to work out. You know, they have so many moving parts and they're playing with them a little bit. And that Kiki Hernandez is now the second baseman and Chris Taylor's the super sub and Bellinger goes back and forth between first base and the outfield. And in some of those configurations, Muncy gets into the lineup. But, you know, it seems like, you know, as Peterson establishes himself and Bellinger's off to a hot start and Kiki's off to a hot start, you know, it, if Muncy doesn't get the bat going early, I feel like he could sort of be the the playing time loser as the Dodgers sort of ride the ride the hot hands a little bit. And he's on the wrong side of the platoon, which is always a concern in those uh, twenty seven guys for twenty four roll type of situations. Uh, over to the mound again, back to the American League. Who's a Bane pitcher for you? Uh, let's go to a bullpen because uh, we were, we were skimming bullpens. Uh, I've been, I don't know if you've got a view on this, but I've been trying to figure out what the heck Rocco Baldelli is doing with the, uh, the twins bullpen. And I got excited when Taylor Rogers got a save on opening day. Cause I own a whole ton of Taylor Rogers, but since then we've seen Parker get a couple of saves and it was a really weird one in Kansas city the other day where Trevor may got the first two outs of the ninth inning and he went to Parker for the last out, even though they're both right-handed. So um, I, I can't, I haven't quite gotten in Rocco Baldelli's head yet, um, but Parker's gotten a few saves, which is probably gonna get a lot of attention for him. But you know, my opinion on that is that Parker's the least skilled pitcher of the guys who are in that mix. So I will fade Parker and bet that, you know, over time he'll blow up a little bit and Rogers or May or Steckenrider or not Steckenrider, Hildenberger. I do that all the time. Hildenberger or Reed or whoever is going to, uh, going to bubble up that list because I don't think Parker is actually better than all those guys. Oh, I'll go one step further, Ray. I, I know he's not as good as all those other guys, and I'm mystified as you are. I have some shares of Trevor May. I have some shares of uh, Taylor Rogers as well, and I look at how this goes, and you think, like, Blake Parker's just not good, and, and yet they just seem really devoted to the idea that he's going to be their closer. And if they were a rebuilding team, I could see them trying to build up his value look at him lots of saves and then try to wheel him for something useful down the road but the twins have aspirations here and they should in the american league central you know in some sense though you know we got to keep in mind that you know the clo- maybe baldelli is thinking this that the closer is you know sometimes the easier job and he's i've seen him use both rogers and may for 
more than one inning stints in the seventh and eighth innings. So it might be that he's trying to find out whether one of those guys can sort of be as Josh Hader and then have the lesser closer, the Jeffries or the Kniebel or whoever, you know, behind them for the ninth inning. Um, I don't know. I still don't know that Parker's going to be that guy, but it might be that Parker's the placeholder while he kind of figures out which one of Mayor Rogers is the better hater and then the other one could be the closer i don't know um but yeah i, I i'm staying I, I i'm not taking I, i'm taking the under on 15 saves for parker even though he's got two or three already yeah i i'm with you on that and that that one out save that he got right at the very end of that game that was just peculiar to me uh i, I was watching that game live and i you know the announcers couldn't figure it out and i couldn't figure it out either and it's also kind of a slap in the face of the guy who's being pulled out with a relatively easy save situation staring him in the face. But again, maybe they're trying to prevent whoever uh, else is in the bullpen from getting saves because they're looking two years down the road to arbitration hearings. Uh, let's go over to the National League. Finally, uh, Bane pitcher for you there. Uh, this is an easy one for me. Uh, I was off him all spring and nothing he's done so far has excited me through through a couple starts. But uh, you Darvish... Um, you know, is more name than actual value at this point. And uh, I don't own any of him and uh, nothing I've seen over two starts is making me regret that. Ray Murphy's Baines, Eduardo Nunez of Boston, Max Muncy of LA, Taylor Rogers of Minnesota, and you Darvish of the Cubs. Uh, Ray, this has been terrific. Tell our Raiders where they can keep up with Ray Murphy. Uh, you can find me in the GM's office on Baseball HQ website, uh, where Brent and I share a column that runs most Fridays. Uh, and if you want to check in uh, more ad hoc, you can always find me at uh, RayHQ on Twitter. All right, Ray, thanks a million. Uh, it's always fun to talk with you. It's always interesting and informative. I do appreciate it. We'll talk with you again during the year. Looking forward to it as always. Ray Murphy is co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com. When we come back, our first weekly talk with Todd Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd buy me some peanuts and cracker jack i don't care if i never get back let me root 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 for the home team if they don't win it's a shame for it's one two three strikes you're out at the old ball game Yes, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for Talk with Todd. And I'm happy to say for the first time in this context, Todd Zola, welcome back to the show. Yeah, different, same person, different name, all good. Let's start off with your uh, early season musings you wrote about at Rotowire in the Z-Files column. And uh, the first question I find really interesting, why aren't you worried about Chris Sale? Um, maybe it's because I'm blinded by so many duck boat parades over the years. I don't know. But I, it, it, it's, I don't know, intuition, common sense, perception, I don't know what you want to call it. But I still fail to believe that the Red Sox would continue to roll him out there. And I'm going to go back to the World Series last year where they used him to close out the series with a three or four run lead. And they had other pitchers available, one of which is unemployed right now. And yet, you know, they, they felt confident enough to put him out there, in my mind, for the 
the thank you as as opposed to we we can't win this unless we use Chris Sale to get four outs. And then they signed him to a five-year deal. And I know teams make mistakes and, and that sort of thing, but I just can't believe it. I think the, to me, I don't, and, and who am I to say? I don't know. But I don't, I don't, I don't agree with Alex Cora's slow playing of the rotation in the spring. Uh, Joe Madden did it a couple years ago with the Cubs after they won. And it seemed to me the, the Lesters and the Ariettas and the, uh, those sort of guys, it took them a little well into the season to get right. And I would have preferred, and again, who am I, you know, to make this kind of judgment without really knowing what's going on. I would have preferred a normal spring and then found time within the season to back off each of the five starters with the extra off days and skipping a guy here and there to control the innings to make sure, you know, sales show a 97 in September and Eduardo Rodriguez is, is healthy the whole year, etc. I wouldn't have messed with the spring. I would have kept that normal. But again, it's what's done is done. Who am I to say? But, um. I just think, especially with Sale, that he's just he's just building it up. His stuff is so good, as he showed against the A's. He can get by in his secondaries and the fastball just fast enough to keep him off balance. And in theory, you know, saving his arm for the for later on in the season. So, if I own Sale, I'm a little bit bummed just because I think that his strikeouts might be down over what you may have expected for the season. But volume-wise, it may be made up. If you if you expected 26 starts, maybe he gets 29 or 30, and he makes it up in volume. Yeah, I thought pretty much the the same stuff all along, especially with regard to the idea that the the Red Sox are a smart team, and they wouldn't have signed him to the contract extension had they had any worries themselves about his physical health and. I also thought, and I'm curious what you think about this, could it be that Chris Sale is just making the transition at this point in his career from just trying to be overpowering all the time to being a little smarter and a little more uh, a little more relaxed about how he gets guys out and sort of realizing he doesn't have to strike out everybody that's in front of him and his fastball velocity might be down this year not because he can't throw fast, or faster, but because he wants to throw the speed he's throwing at because he knows he can get guys out by mixing speeds, mixing his pitches differently, and so forth. Yeah, I think, yes, I I think so, because, I mean, part, you know, reading, you know, we'll go into the contract a little bit more. The Red Sox are right up against the salary cap and will be for the next couple of years. So they would, I don't think, you know, it's not just they wouldn't assign a guy to that money. I don't think they would, I think you, you double down on the fact that they wouldn't have signed him because it's going to be a cap issue. I mean, if there was any concern, they wouldn't have signed him just because they they can't sign anybody else. You know, you know, they're stuck. So I mean, I know they're trying to sign Mookie Betts to an extension, etc. So the, I mean, they're just going to be up against the the luxury, and they're willing to pay it as well. They should, because you make back in whatever they're making back in playoff money, they're going to easily pay the luxury tax penalty, as it were. But yeah, and I I do think you know it's part of the five year plan, whatever it might be. So what we might see is we may see a 94-95 max instead of a 96-97. I don't think we're going to see him sitting 80-89 all season. I do think that'll build up. And I think he'll be one of those guys that rears back and, 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 and can touch night and, and has 97 when he needs it. I think we'll see that. But I don't think we're going to see the, you know, the six-week stretch of Chris Sale where he was unhittable, you know, sitting 97 last year for for you know that 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 stretch in June and July. I think you might be right about that. 
they're, you know, I, I mentioned, I said long play. They're long playing this contract, I believe, at this point. And uh, when your stuff's that good, especially left-handed, just because, you know, they don't see as many left-handers, I think you're right. I, I think you can, uh, he can dial it down. I mean, maybe he becomes a little bit like Verlander in that, you know, he, he sits 94-95, but when he has 97, it's there. I know they're different type of pitches, but after Verlander got over his his trunk issue, that's kind of what he's become lately. And I know Sale's younger, but um, Sale also has a, a different body, and he's had some arm issues before, so it could just be a preemptive strike towards, I'm going to have to have this eventually, let's start it now. Or, I'm going to have to pitch like this eventually, let's just start it now. Yeah, and I wonder also if the Red Sox asked him to, to consider doing that or worked with him to say, you know, we want you to be here for four 30 start years uh, because of the contract and we think that the best way to do this physically especially as you get a little older is you're going to have to dial it down learn to be more of a pitcher than a thrower and not that he was particularly a a, a, just a hard thrower before but I I I tend to be optimistic about this largely because I trust the team and because I mm-hmm. think that Chris Sale has a vested interest in maintaining his career. And, and, you know, the medical research that's coming out over the last few years has indicated that we used to think it was breaking balls and sliders that were causing elbow trouble. And, and increasingly what they're learning is it's just a lot of pitches thrown at maximum effort. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. And if you know that, if you're Chris Sale and you know that, you say to yourself, and if you're the Red Sox and you know that, you say to Chris Sale, you know, dial it down a bit. You might extend your career by two years, and that's good for everybody. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think they're saying this to him, but he has a potential Hall of Fame career in front of him, right? So, you know, you know, the longer he maintains this level, the better chance he is to get in the Hall and some rings. And you know, the, the, amazingly, the guy's never won a Cy Young. Not that he can't, he can still win a Cy Young. You know, with a few less, you know, a little bit, you know, a little bit less velocity, but no, I absolutely think that they're, uh, you know, am I, I don't know, is, is my concern zero? I don't, I don't think it's zero, but to me, it's more, it's not a health concern. It's once we do settle in, you know, is 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 he is he going to be the, right now? He's the best pitcher in the league, or he's been the uh, the best pitcher in the league when you best pitcher in the league, excuse me when you neutralize for Park, et cetera, even better than, than DeGrom and some of these other guys. Is he going to, is he, you know, he's still be very, 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 very good. Um, is he going to be the best anymore? I don't know. I still think he could be because, you know, Fenway Park is a huge runs park. So there's a, there's a big conversion factor. So, um, of course, it does, you know, that's just for talk purposes. You know, the numbers are the numbers. You know, the what we care about are the adjust, you know, the, the real numbers. But still, I think... Uh, I think the my I th- I know other people disagree, but my personal level of of concern is is not so much, and I may even look to acquire him. Uh, I may even look to acquire Sale in a trade if his owner is panicking. Whether to be worried about Chris Sale is also the topic of this week's uh, Tout Wars table. The Tout table on uh, ToutWars.com, uh, you've got a bunch of uh, entries already. I'll have mine on there shortly. Uh, what are the experts in Tout Wars saying about their level of concern? Yeah, what, uh, what I'm, what I, you know, we're starting up our round table again, and this was the first one. We had a couple in the offseason or the preseason. Uh, we're getting, you know, I listed 10 pitchers. I didn't list the Verlanders and the Coles, the obvious studs, but... I don't know. Actually, I, I shouldn't say. I mean, Trevor Bauer might be an obvious stud, but the Trevor Bauer, Bauer, Blake Snell, uh, you know, that that the next the next group down, at least as far as ADP goes, 
with the uh, with the different touts like any of these pitchers over Chris Snell, uh, Chris Snell, uh, Blake Snell, Chris Sale right now. Uh, but we're getting anything from you know what we're sort of suggesting in very little or no concern to you know what give me all ten of those guys over Chris Sale. I'm not risking it. So it's kind of it's kind of fun now. He he pitches Sunday, so I'm, I usually post these on Monday. I'm wondering if I want to kind of post it early, just because if we get if we keep continuing to get a bunch of responses, just because um, I'd like to have it up before his next start. So whatever it is that we're saying, you know, it's before we see another piece of data. So I may actually post this one early on Sunday this week. They normally go up Monday or Tuesday. I talked a little bit about this with Ray Murphy earlier in the show. Uh, Todd, but you say you're an aggressive early fab guy, and you made an interesting point in discussing that point of view about using the early season not just to replace hurt players. How does that work? Yeah, um, and I, I, to me, I mean, you know, this is one of those you look back at your season and, and, and decide what you've done wrong things. It's kind of one of my introspective, you know, what I'm looking at my teams. And especially in mixed leagues, I think one of my mistakes has been being too complacent early on with Fab. You know, I look through my, my, my lineup, and if I don't see whatever site, if it's a little red plus or IL or whatever it might be to, to signify someone's hurt, I say, okay, I don't have to make any moves this week. What I fail, what I have failed to done in, in recent years is take a look at my reserves and see, well, I drafted, I'm trying to think of, a, of an example of someone, I drafted Dustin Fowler on a lot of teams because I thought he may win a job, and I still think he may win, may come up in uh, and, and help out the A's outfield. But uh, right now he's not helping me much, and there are players that have emerged. So I should be, re- and, I, and I have, I should, I, you know, I, I replaced Dustin Fowler on a lot of teams this year because right now he's doing me no good. So go down reserves, and maybe you are high on, uh, a, a, you know, everybody has their own Dustin Fowler. And we don't just look to upgrade your, your lineup, look to upgrade your reserves. It seems so obvious, but I don't think everybody does it. Matter of fact, I know they don't, because if you look through rosters in your league, you'll see players of this ilk that, that haven't been replaced. It could be a pitcher, too. It could be a pitcher that you thought might start or might close. You know, if you were if you were uh, high on um, trying to think of a closer that, that ended up not getting the job, um, you know, I, I don't even even see you know thinking with the Red Sox. I don't think we can say Ryan Brazier anymore because he's not 100 percent sure because uh, he did get the saves the other day. But if it's a closer you thought would close and isn't closing, and you're not going to use him as a middle reliever, replace him even if he's not hurt. And uh, especially mixed league because right now the pool is as plush as it's going to be once you know injuries have already started to hit. But you know, obviously somebody comes up from the minors when everybody gets hurt, but still the quality of these replacements will not be as good. So. Do your due diligence. Don't just replace your starters. In some leagues, I've someone I've said this, and someone said, "Well, I have to like tout voice. I have to start the guy." Well, take the one week hit if, 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 in order to get the better reserve for down the line, because you might not need you might not need the player this week, but you're probably you are going to need the player before the season ends. You're, someone in your team is going to get hurt. Yeah, I think that's the key point about the whole thing is that we look at our roster and we think to ourselves, well, if I need to replace an injured player, especially in a mixed league, there's lots of guys that are, that will be available, but the better ones are going to get skimmed off as the season rolls along. And if you're in week 10 when your injury hits, yeah, it's it's a deeper free agent pool than it would be if you were playing in a single league format like Tout American League only or National League only, 
but it's still going to be a thinner pool because it will have been picked through. Right. And, you know, again, whoever, the, the number of players available, you know, there's 750 players available every week, but the quality, you know, the, 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 the quality of the, the player is not as good as the quality, you know, right now, right now, Tyler O'Neill may be, may be on your reserve list, uh, on your available list. And with Marcelo Zuna hurt, et cetera, you know, he's probably better than a replacement outfielder in 10 weeks. And in that early season musings column uh, at the Z-Files, rotowire.com, you made a point about managing ERA and whip in the early going. And I thought it was interesting that you made a point of noting at the start, you are not contradicting yourself <laughs> and your well-established position on managing ERA and whip late in the season. What's the takeaway and analysis there? Yeah, so, you know, I will talk, I'm sure, later in the year about you can still gain or lose points in the ratios. I think more people are understanding that now, which is good. Uh, but early in the air, I, I, I'm, I'm aggressive with two-start pitchers, and this is reflected, and I do my the two-start rankings for Rotowire, which reflected in that, in that you'll you'll see two-start, you know, a lesser two-start pitcher jump up over a a good starter with one start, just because for that week, the two starts help you in the in a vacuum in that one week more than the one start of one start of the of the better pitcher. Um, the reason basically being it takes it takes a lot to move it, you can absorb 10 or 15 pretty poor outings before you're really hurt in the standings because you're also getting wins and strikeouts with those poor outings and the the counterbalances itself so it's it's difficult to just put an exact number on it because different leagues you would have had different pitchers pitching in those spots so to get an exact number of points, it's hard to, I can't say, you know, it's worth five points in strikeouts because we don't exactly know. But it, it, it does depend on the league. But the wins in the case, you get counterbalance the potential loss in the ratio. So especially this year, even, you know, we said it last year because the extent of the seat, the, the extra off days uh, reduce the number of two-start pitchers. Just the way the schedule works this season even though it's the same number of off days, there's even going to be fewer two-start opportunities, just the way there's just some five-game five, five game weeks, more five-game weeks. And even this particular, this upcoming, or this present week, I think there's six or seven teams with five-game weeks, uh, you know, a well-deserved rest a week into the season. Good Lord, let's, uh, let's have these guys play some ball early on. It's kind of silly. But the point being, there's fewer two-start weeks. To choose from, you need to be more, uh, not so much, it's even more, it's, need to be more it pays to be more aggressive because there's fewer options early on so it, it it's the balance between win strikeouts versus ratios of course this is five by four five scoring and uh sometimes we forget there's a lot of people out there playing points based leagues in which case it's just figure out the points that you're expecting and and do the math and usually two start weeks are really important there unless the scoring is, you can get really negative for pitching but um I think it pays to be aggressive early on, and you know the whole point about the end of the season you can still move in the ratios. It has to do with you know, not every team can. It has to do with where you are in the standings. But on April April fifth, I have no idea where I'm going to end up in the standings. So I don't. I can't manage to. I don't want to manage that. I want to manage to the average standings at this point. And on average, you gain more points in wins and wins and strikeouts than you lose in ratios. And I, the numbers that I used were kind of 
if you do a poor job streaming, if you would do a if you do a better job streaming, you're 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 it's going to really come out in your favor. It's an excellent point about the counting stats outweighing the relatively modest changes in a 12, 13, 1500 inning season from a bad start here and there. A bad start with seven strikeouts is still a pretty good start in the great scheme of things. Yeah, now you know, I you know, I, one of the counters to it as well if you're if you purposely made the the ratio is poor. You're not going to get many wins, which is correct. But in but now what you have, you know, it's sort of that baseline. What what pitchers in there instead? Are you just using middle relievers to keep the ratios down? And you know how many wins are they going to get? So you know, and, and again, the other the bigger point being, I think in my example, I used a 4.50 ERA for streaming, which you know that and that, that that's over the course of the 150 innings of 4.50. You, you're going to have some good options. You're going to have some good games in there too so you know if, if you end up at 4.50 that means you did you know, i think you did a poor job so i think a more realistic goal when you try to stream is close you know to, to the low fours 4.1 4.2 era you know i know era is more variable and we probably should talk in terms of whip just because it's more stable but i think people it's more relatable hearing era is more you know we know what a four era is we're not 100 percent sure what a 1.28 whip is is that good? Is it bad? Is it you know? We, but we you know ERA we know. So it's kind of like K per nine versus K percent. We probably should talk K percent, but we know what a we know what an eight point four K per nine is. We're not exactly sure what a twenty three point six K percent is. You know, many do, but it's just more relatable. But anyway, but um, yeah, and and it's in in mixed leagues especially. Uh, I just I think it pays to be aggressive early. All right, brother. I do appreciate you taking the time. Looking forward to talking you uh, talk. Jeez. Looking forward to talking with you throughout the season on Talk with Todd. Uh, I'll talk to you starting next week. Absolutely, Patrick. Always look forward to it. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and RotoWire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, and master notes coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have Master Notes. And leading off, it's our frequent flyer comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Minnesota second baseman Luis Arias. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He has incredible back control, and he sprays soft line drives and hard ground balls to all fields with a short punch and judy swing, according to the 2019 Minor League Baseball Analyst. The Minnesota Twins second baseman, Luis Arias's contact-oriented approach is often overlooked. Despite a 329 career batting average of the Miners and winning the Midwest League batting title in 2016, this soon-to-be 22-year-old, he'll be 22 on Tuesday, April 9th, seems to be relatively unknown in fantasy circles. Signed by the Twins for $40,000 in 2013. Wait, whoa, say that again? 
signed by the Twins for $40,000 in 2013. Wait, doing the math, let's see. He's turning 22 on Tuesday and signed six years ago? That means he likely signed with the Twins when he was 16. That's correct. Luis Arias was signed by the Minnesota Twins out of Venezuela in November 2013 and played his first professional season the following spring in 2014. In other words, despite his age, Luis Arias already has five seasons of professional baseball under his belt. Well, maybe four. Luis Arias played in only three games in 2017 before tearing his ACL, forcing him to miss the rest of the 2017 season. Plus, he hasn't played above AA prior to this season. That's why Luis Arias, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Even so, Luis Arias only struck out 44 times in 406 at-bats in 2018. That translates to a contact rate, which measures the hitter's ability to get wood on the ball, of 89% in 2018. Remember, we at BaseballHQ.com believe that the 300 hitters most often come from the group with a minimum 86% contact rate and a minimum 11% walk rate when using contact rate and walk rate as leading indicators. Although Luis Arias only had a 7% walk rate in 2018, not 11%, he still exceeded the 86% contact rate we look for as a leading indicator. Pretty impressive. But our expectation benchmark at BaseballHQ.com for an 89% contact rate and a 7% walk rate would be a 279 batting average at the major league level. Not bad for a rookie. Nevertheless, we are predicting at BaseballHQ.com that Luis Arias will make his major league debut in 2019. One of three prospects added to the Minnesota Twins' 40-man roster last November, maybe Luis Arias should also be added to your roster as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about some early season trends. On April 2nd, the estimable analysis site 538.com, headed by former Baseball HQ analyst Nate Silver, dropped a hot takedowns podcast titled Let's Overreact to Major League Baseball's opening weekend. This site, of course, is a truly excellent must-read for anyone of a data analytical bent, but with all due respect, it's a little presumptuous to base any analysis on three days' worth of games, plus a couple of tilts in Japan. That's why I had the good sense to wait until after the entire first week to overreact. Now that's what I call a sample size. Actually, it probably isn't, but in the manner of fine sports journalism everywhere, I'm not going to let the small matter of insufficient data stop me from making some important points. So let's take a look at some of the stats from week one. The first item to note is that hits are down to below 8 per game, by far the lowest in the 30-team era and the lowest in Major League history since 1908. And that shouldn't really count, since that was when baseballs were made out of old pillowcases stuffed with dead passenger pigeons which was a big improvement over when they were stuffed with live passenger pigeons. 
All the other sub-eight hit-per-game seasons were either in the pillow ball era or in 1968, when Bob Gibson was throwing 212-mile-an-hour fastballs from an eight-foot-tall mound only 46 feet from home plate. That's what my dad said anyway. Meanwhile, singles are down even more than hits. The singles per game mark in this early season is literally the lowest ever. And I literally mean literally, not literally in the usual sports journalism sense of not literally. Anyway, the 10 lowest singles per game levels in Major League history have all taken place from 2010 to 2019, ending with the last four seasons dropping from 8.7 down to 7.8 singles per game. This development is part of a trend that has seen singles drop steadily from 9 or 10 per game in the Pigeon Ball era to around 7 per game through the DiMaggio era to around 6 through the Beatles era, with a brief jump into the mid-sixes in the Big Red Machine era, back to the low sixes per game until the start of the steroid era. Since then, singles have dropped for many seasons in a row, dipping under six singles per game and declining further until you reach the 4.8 we see so far this year. That's four fewer singles per game from the extinct wildfowl era and a full single per game in just the last four seasons. Of course, it's early yet to say whether it's actually happened and why. It might be something as simple as a few less leg hits early in the season because guys are being cautious about running hard for 30 yards when their quads are chilled like meat locker ham hocks. But it's something to watch, considering it has an impact on run scoring, indirectly on RBIs, and of course on stolen bases. Stolen base attempts, steady downward. In 1995, there was just over one stolen base attempt per game. So far this year, that number is down to 0.6. That's a pretty big drop. And again, it could be early days, frigid nights, cold ham hocks. But when the 30-team era began 21 seasons ago, that's a big difference. So even if this year's number rebounds to the 2016-17 level of around 0.7, the game will still be missing some 1,600 stolen base attempts per year compared with 1995. And at the 71% success rate in the 30-team era, that's more than 1,100 lost bags. In a related development, stolen base opportunity percentage has dropped by more than a quarter during the 30-team era that began in 1998. It's down to just 4.9% this season. That's using Baseball Reference's definition of stolen base opportunities. So they're running less than 5% of the time when the chance exists, down from 68 in 1998. Happily, hitters are finding other ways to get on base. Walks are up about 13% from 2016 to about 3.5 so far this year, and we can hope that this increase in walks helps offset the loss of singles as far as stolen base opportunities go. As well, hit-by-pitches are up quite a bit. In 2016, they were around 0.34 per nine innings. This year, they're up to 0.51. That 17-point jump is a 50% increase in plunkings. That could be a case of pitchers struggling in the colder, drier weather to find their fine control. There's not a lot of gaps available between hitting the inside black and the hitter's elbow armor, knee armor, shoulder armor, hand armor, or thigh armor. In fact, it seems more and more like they're hitting the plate and the plating. But in several games I've watched so far this season, commentators have been talking about how pitching coaches are telling their pitchers they have to be more aggressive pounding the ball to the inside part of the plate, partly to counter the growing trend of hitters diving into outside pitches to put them into play with authority. I've seen Nelson Cruz get hit right on the knob of the bat twice already so far, and both times he was hanging out over the plate like a Notre Dame gargoyle. And he actually got angry at being hit. 
If this is a thing, we need to watch out for more hitter injuries. We've already seen a spate of hitters like Jose Ramirez and Andrew Benintendi fouling inside pitches onto the insides of their own knees and Jose Ramirez again onto his own foot. This is a potential source of injuries and of course there's always the possibility of a hitter being hit on the hands. This could be another source of stolen base opportunities if the trend continues, but a source of big injury problems as well. Stop me if you've heard this one, but strikeout rates are at a new major league high, tipping past one strikeout per inning for the first time ever. As little as four years ago, strikeouts were down around eight per nine, now they're at nine per nine. And this trend has been going since Abner Doubleday killed his first passenger pigeon as it flew off the ark and sought landfall. I might be confusing a few stories there, but in any case, strikeouts will be more and more plentiful, and there could be a hidden value jump here in hitters who don't strike out. More to watch here and plenty more to think about. Another short-run trend with potential long-term ramifications is that saves are already up quite substantially. Over 30% of games so far have been saved. That's up from around 26% just five years ago. Again, there's an easy explanation, and those are my favorite kinds of explanations. Cold weather and early season caution with zillion-dollar arms are getting starters out of the game earlier. This is something to watch as the weather improves, to see if starters get more stretched out, or if they're not, and continue to have their innings restricted because of the well-advertised third-time-through penalty, something I'm familiar with from my days at local buffets. This could be a huge development, decreasing counting stats like innings, strikeouts, and wins, taking them away from starters, and potentially redistributing them to a larger number of relief pitchers who will also be getting more holds and saves. I was curious about the number of pitchers getting saves, as we've been encouraged to expect more advanced leverage-based bullpen management, spreading the saves more widely among pitchers. It might still happen, but it hasn't so far. Teams have used the same number of pitchers to close wins as last year through 158 games, 35 different pitchers both this year and last year. Finally, here's my favorite. Official scorers seem to be calling more errors, errors. In 2016, there were around 0.58 errors called per game. This year, that's up to 0.66. Again, it could be weather-related, but it bears watching. I wonder if Major League Baseball has told the stores to start cracking down and being more stringent on using the rule book standard of a hit or an error, namely, if a big league player should have made the play and didn't. This would be a huge change from current policy. And by the way, the rules say that the fielder does not have to touch a ground ball or fly ball to commit an error if he could have made the play with what they call ordinary effort. The seven-point change in errors per game thus far, after 134 games and more than 5,000 fielding chances, it's a 16% increase. Now, if that continues, we're going to see a further decline in singles, not in base runners, and a further decline in ERAs and whips, as fewer base runners are blamed on pitchers and counted against their ratios. The benefit would disproportionately favor ground ball pitchers and punish ground ball hitters. So, that's it. Walks, hit-by-pitches, strikeouts, saves, and errors are up. Hits, singles, and stolen bases are down. I can hardly wait for the next 25 weeks. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 5th. 
Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 16 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday full edition, Ray Murphy, co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com. Ray's a terrific fantasy analyst and writer, a really good fantasy baseball player as well, a great guest and a real friend of this podcast. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you get your pods. And if they have the feature, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find your listeners, and that really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another Friday full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.